I could yeah, because you... it sounded good last time, but and yet when it came to it, it was it was oh quieter God. than the booze aisle in Morrison's after six pm. Topical. I yeah, I, I've turned myself down a little bit because I think I spent my entire life screaming at the top of my lungs through a megaphone at a load of children. So I'm gonna try. I'll just turn the mic down just a smidgen today, so I'm not bellowing over you or indeed into you. Um, so yeah, this is Kino Kingdom 21, and I I've I've got to be fair. This week has been very Korean heavy for me. I've mm. Netflix is now just when I log into Netflix, it just pops up with Korean thrillers, Brit. And yes, that's right. Netflix click. Um, so I've got so it's 10 been, films. been quite career focused. So I've got 10 films. Um, I've got, I'll edit that out. Is my daughter really dead? <laughs> Ninja Assassin. Forgotten, not that one. The Punisher, not that one. <laughs> Mi- Mirrors. The Call, not that one. Taking Lives. <laughs> Storage 24. Alive, not that one. <laughs> don't listen and the terror within so a few Blimey. a few keepers a few flying around here for me today <laughs> okay you got quite a few then Wolf, I, I think it was 10 yeah yeah it was 10 there was 9 and then I remembered the 10th um which yeah. which was uh, which yeah is my daughter really dead? Which I'll go into later on, but has, has literally got a title. Its alternate title gives away the plot. It's amazing. amazing. I cannot wait to tell you. Okay, well for me, I have uh, I think about nine films. I've got uh, Tarzan, Dark Waters, Fugitives, uh, Fahrenheit eleven nine, Hellmaster, Resident Evil. Resident Evil Apocalypse, Resident Evil Extinction, and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Oh, wow. I'm looking forward to a few of these. Obviously, Fear and Loathing is, is a film very close to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and um, and Hellmaster just sounds like something I would watch without pause. <laughs> <laughs> Some would say I chose it purely on the title. Who, who will they be? Anyone... <laughs> who's got any idea of anything um the yeah the front cover of it it i won't lie it <laughs> it does somewhat invoke hellraiser i'm gonna give you a little preview it's not as good okay <laughs> we have a quick look at this hellmaster hellmaster when was it made that sounds like 80s allegedly 1992 oh, have my doubts about whether the it was made of that, I demand that our listeners look at the cover of Hellmaster. It is. It says ninety two. Oh my god! Even the font, everything. Yeah. Oh my god! Even the, the director, screenplay, and producer are all Douglas Schultz. But Douglas, Doug Bradley, even that link is there. <laughs> Hang on, John Saxon didn't he die? Yeah. Recently? Oh wow. Yeah, he did. He did. God, I don't know any of those people. Um, well, Rupert, before we launch once again into into movie territory, I've obviously managed to wangle some sponsorship, and this time oh, it's, it's not some weird Yorkshire murder story. It's um, it's like something a bit more grounded. Mm. So <clears throat> this week we are sponsored by Mills and Boone's Hard and Direct Line. 
Here at Mills and Boone, we know we have to move with the times. Hence our new hard and direct line of novels, which deal with stories of horror, suspense, history and adventure, as well as everyday life with our usual dose of sex and romance, but in a much more hard-hitting, blunt and truncated format for the modern busy reader. No floral masked language here, just punchy and raunchy tales of lust to get your pulse racing. Choose a title from our launch selection. Are everyday tales of love your thing? Well, try Islands of Passion. Sheila is a housewife whose husband passed away a year ago by slipping on a dog shit and falling off a cliff, landing in a wolf's den. A year on, she misses him, but she's also a hot-blooded woman with needs of her own, so she goes to Greece to get shagged. Or the Triangle of Love. Loving husband David adores his wife, but she's so busy at work that his animalistic needs are being neglected. A chance meeting with a friendly prostitute named Summer could lead to a messy situation. Will he give in and slip her 40 quid for a quick tug behind W.H. Smith's? Yes, he does, by page 15. Or the postman knocks twice, once on the door, and then your wife up. Perhaps history is more your scene. Well, try the monks of Brunswick Abbey. It's 1840 and the abbot is away on business. How long before the monks knock sexual abstinence on their head and turn the abbey into a steamy monument to homosexual passion? Not long, mate. The abbot hadn't even managed to shut the gate behind it before Brother Gregor's knickers were down and his ass is covered in honey, much to the delight of Brothers Crikey and Moses. Or is adventure your game? Journey to Devil's Chuff. <laughs> Alan Pleathering is an explorer loved by all. His latest exploit is to travel deep within the chasm of Devil's Chuff to find the treasures buried deep within the sulfur pits. Will he fall to his death? Will his meager supplies run out? Will he be attacked by an ancient tribe? Will he get wanked off in a tent by his hot assistant? No, 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 and yes. Or there's a horror selection. The hot blood of Dracula. Living forever can get boring, but one thing that this count doesn't tire of is watching the free ten minutes of Babe Station at midnight as his many brides turn into wolves and bats and show him their asses. They've come to suck him off! Full frontal Frankenstein's monster. Due to Dr. Frankenstein having a massive heart attack just as his creation comes to life, the monster has no idea what his purpose in life is. What he does know, however, is that he's got a massive wobbler, and being over seven feet tall, he can see the doctor's porn mag stash on the top of his wardrobe. Winner. What are you waiting for? There's something for everyone at Mills and Boone, hard and direct. Place your orders now. Well, so it's good to see that uh, Mills and Boone are moving with the times a little bit. It really is over something for everyone as well, isn't it? It's like yeah. you know, if you, if you don't fancy journeys the devil's chuff, then um, then maybe the monks of Brunswick Abbey would be more up your. <laughs> I, I, I like it's funny in well, Abbey <laughs> Kirsty. I think that it's nice the monk of Brunswick Abbey. The, the fact that you know, I think I don't know how how steamy like a, a monastery could get. I just think of it as as being sort of just whistling wind through just bare stone walls. Imagine it'd be pretty brisk most of the time. But you want to keep your kegs up. But if you could, if you were going to read one of those, I mean, I'd probably go with. I'm I'm a horror fan, so I'd probably go with the the Hot Blood of Dracula. But which one do you think you'd go for? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I I do like the idea of full frontal Frankenstein's monster. So, yeah, I might give that a go. Yeah. Cool. And Not obviously, I would, well, 
But secretly, I'd have a copy of the Monks of Brunswick Abbey inside. <laughs> How steamy. Hiding can it? it from prying eyes. <laughs> Hiding it from praying eyes, more like. Eh? Because yeah. they're monks. Uh, right yeah. then. That's enough of that bollocks. So, straight on to the action, the meat. I think I've got one more than you. And I'm talking right. about testicles. So, <laughs> I'll go first with, is my daughter really dead? Now, this is a film that I was tricked into watching um, when I should have been what the Germans refer to as verking. But uh, it was on and I turned around and there was a woman in it in her like, late 40s who was a screamer, so I got sort of side-tracked side, uh, into it. So, this is a film about a... It's a TV movie. It's very much a TV movie about a woman whose daughter is claiming to be 15, clearly in her mid to late 30s, literally got bags under her eyes and two divorces behind her. And um, her, she, she, her daughter's like very much on her father's side. There's just kind of brief 10 minutes at the start where it's a bit of a fracturous sort of marriage. They argue she tells him to move out and within seconds, seconds, he is dead in a car crash. And uh, And then people start knocking on her door and tell her that her daughter isn't real and that she's just been imagining it for the last five years. Now, th this is a film that is obviously made for TV. It is brief and it is cheap and it's an hour and 24 minutes and you know that includes lengthy titles on the front and back. So you're looking at hour and 10 tops, classic. Um, whilst it was kind of trashily enjoyable, um, I, I knew none of the cast at all. Um, it's from, I should say, sorry, it's from, it's from last year. Um, mm. Whilst I kind of enjoyed it up to a point as like a sort of trashy, silly sort of thriller, like daytimey thriller, everything's really brightly lit and it's quite cheesy. The musical cues literally tell you exactly how you're supposed to be feeling at any given moment. So if you're watching mm. it and thinking, oh, I've missed 10 minutes, how should I feel? You just listen and you're like, yep, that's how I'm supposed to feel. Um, <laughs> about I got to a point about 35 to 40 minutes in and I thought to myself, this is either going to be the cleverest film I've ever seen and it's going to have a twist that's going to completely blindsign me and amaze me. Or it's going to just completely and utterly collapse under the weight of its own plot and not make sense of this woman who is looking for a daughter that she doesn't believe, uh, that she thinks is still alive, but everyone is telling her is dead. Her new neighbor, uh, you know, her, uh, her, her, a policeman knocks on her door, her husband's friends are all just saying, no, she died in the same accident as your husband, and um, she's gone. So what I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark. <laughs> Go on. And say that it was not the most intelligent film we've ever seen. And in fact, it was deeply disappointing and it just collapsed under it the weight of its narrative inconsistencies. Yes. Um, because I'm just going to tell you, right? So if you imagine, this is a, the story centers around a woman who is convinced her daughter is still alive somewhere. And there's some sort of plot against her and everyone around her who's telling her no 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 she, she's dead is lying to her and then i will tell you that the american title for this film is gaslit <laughs> so, so it literally if i had seen that i mean is my daughter really dead is a pretty blunt title but if it's called gaslit the second she says oh my daughter's not you know exactly what's happened that it's a plot <laughs> against her so it was preposterous um yeah, the whole the whole thing is just ridiculous. And then when it gets to the end, there's even a point where the father who's... I'm just spoiling this. It doesn't matter. No one's going to watch this. Um, at, the, at the end of the film, when it's like, 
it kind of cuts to this this cabin that the woman, the mother, has been talking about constantly, saying, oh, he was on his way to the cabin when the car accident happened. And, you know, they never found a body kind of thing. Uh, they just found the car burning. Mm. She never thinks, one, to go on the internet and do a search of any kind, which would just bring the film to its knees, mm. or go to the cabin where he has just been hiding out. <laughs> so she spends the whole film kind of panicking. And it's really cheap because whenever she panics the lighting changes and it cuts to like a handheld shot like under her chin that wobbles a bit and she's got like a bit of sweat in her face. It's so bad. Um, what, like, like the Blair Witch Project or something? Well, yeah. Or the Blair Witch Project, it was filmed in like the late 60s for TV. <laughs> so so it, it's, at the end, there's a bit where the, the, the daughter is with the, the father and they're walking over like a mountain and saying, and she's literally just explaining the plot to him. And he's going, yep, yep. And then she says, there's a few, there's a few questions I've got. Like, why, why have you done this? And why is, everyone, why is everyone else in on it when they've got nothing to gain? And he literally just shushes her and then just moves on. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, she well, asked the questions that I wouldn't mind actually knowing the answers yeah. to. <laughs> so he's um, basically just shutting down a pretty valid inquiry about the plot. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it's almost like they brought it to the forefront. Like, and we're like, yeah, okay, this actually, how is he going to just say, why would anyone have any vested interest in any of this? And, uh, and yeah, it's just, he just shushes her and just like, and then she runs off. She runs off over a mountain and bumps into her mum. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just a cheesy film. It's not really good enough to watch for fun because not enough happens for that. But uh, oh, right. okay. is my daughter really dead or gaslit? I can see where they change the title because people go look at the picture on the cover, look at the cu- the title, and then know what happened. <laughs> Neither title is great, really, is it? No. I mean that just yeah, because yeah, <laughs> I mean gaslit. <laughs> gaslit means something in this context, but on its own, you, you it could mean anything. It could mean something literal. And then, is my daughter really dead? I mean, you've got to be careful with asking a question in a title, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, one of the films actually do that. Um, I can't really think. Whatever, whatever happened to Baby Jane? Um, oh, yeah, whatever the Baby Jane, that's a good one, yeah. Yeah, that's true. But not many, just like not many films, have like an exclamation mark at the end of the title because it's you just you just don't really want that kind of stuff but you don't really want to be you don't want to be forcing your audience to say the title in a certain way basically <laughs> i don't think anyone's ever watched airplane and called it airplane they've just no. said airplane well even but... like the four or five people who've seen this wouldn't say oh we'll order in a chinese and we'll sit down and we'll watch is my daughter really dead <laughs> it just wouldn't happen <laughs> Yeah, it can. It sounds too much like they're asking an actual question, right? Um, so that was right. Okay, won't watch that then. Was that made last year? You say last year, yeah. Is it on Prime? Uh, no, I think this was actually on Netflix. Really? Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to go straight for Disney Plus for my first one, which is Tarzan. Okay. Uh, this was made in 1999. It did okay business, but it does sit right at the heart of Disney's downturn um, before they started buying everything, before they bought Pixar, before they bought Lucasfilm, before they bought 
Marvel. Um, it's the one with the Phil Collins songs in it. They're actually pretty decent, to be fair. Although I do think it's a bit weird the way that characters will start singing like the first line and then like you Phil jumps in from... and just takes over. Oh, <laughs> really? Just <does. laughs> <laughs> it's kind of weird. So, yeah, it's like it's like they put they push he pushes them out of the way off the microphone. It says, on. Let me Phil get Collins, in Phil Collins has got one of my. Um, I went through a phase of wondering why he was why he was so revered because there was this kind of retro canonical revival of his music, and I was determined to stamp it out. And I watched a few of his live shows, and of course, yeah. when he does in the air tonight, there's it's like a lengthy kind of introduction. Yeah. And I, I really, I realize I've massively interjected here, but this has been on my mind for years now. So right. you imagine there's, he, there's a lengthy introduction where it's just him singing over kind of synth. And then, of yes. course, the big drum intro and off you go. Yeah. When you watch him live, he he does this thing where, and it's painful to watch. He'll come out um, looking like someone's dad who was rushed home from work at the factory to get out on stage. Yes. And, and when I've watched him, he's had like a shirt. I've seen a video of him where he's got a shirt half tucked in with a button stand up the wrong way, uh, like up, up one side. And he's missed the loop on his belt. And he comes out and he does this thing where he walks around really nonchalantly as if he's not at a gig. And he's kind of mm-hmm. singing just to himself and like ignoring the audience. And he just like sits on the stage, dangles his legs off, and then slowly walks behind the kit. And yes, just in time for the big. It's awful. It's something that someone would do in a bingo hall to impress old women. And it's oh god. Anyway, sorry. I just yeah. He looks like the police chief out of the Thin Blue Line. Um, I'm just trying to think if I know. Are you thinking of um, what's his name? Not the guy with the. You've got me thinking now. You got me thinking that sounds like a Genesis song. Um, right. <laughs> With an apostrophe, no G. You G-match. got me thinking. Um, right, okay. About leaving this band. <laughs> um, anyways, Tarzan then. Yeah, the plot is pretty thin and it's very predictable. Um, and basically, an ape mum loses her baby, but then she finds a human baby who's, who she names Tarzan. And she raises him as her own. Um, the dad ape is pretty sceptical, obviously paving the way for a later reconciliation. Um, but uh, yeah, so they're in the jungle. These cruel English explorers stumble upon the community of apes. Um, not just apes, actually. Elephants and various other beasts. Um, and of course, Tarzan, who is now grown up, falls head over heels for the babe amongst them. Um, so but the explorers are intending to like steal some of the apes in a kind of King Kong way, and they're going to kill the ones that resist. Um, so Tarzan obviously has to make a decision, but he'll obviously stand against the oppressors. Guess who plays Tarzan in this film? Because I was, I recognize his voice and I was thinking, who is that? Who is that? You won't be able to guess. But John, it's not Johnny Weissmuller, so it must be Eric Stoltz. <laughs> it's it's that level. It is none other than Tony Goldwyn. <laughs> oh boy, Tony, fantastic! <laughs> yes. uh, but it works pretty well. I mean, he's got the voice. Uh, he's got a good voice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Minnie Driver is the love interest, and she's just slightly irritating. I guess they wanted her kind of tomboyish voice, but 
I don't know, her vocal quirks and her weird laugh must have been a nightmare for the animators. Um, but um, Brian Blessed plays the main bad guy, which is good, obviously, because he's brilliant. Um, the film does look amazing, uh, particularly when like the swooping shots as Tarzan swings through the jungle. Uh, it, it's like has this effect where the painted art almost becomes 3D. I, I guess they're using the same like CG augmentation that they used a bit in The Lion King, but taking it to another level sort of thing. Um, but then at the same time, this was the most expensive animation ever made at the time. So it's not really a surprise. Um, I don't think it's a really great film. It, it, like it looks amazing but it doesn't have that same the same kind of operatic weight of the best disney work you know like um the kind of those really kind of epic family machinations of like lion king or something like that uh, and it's really really bogged down by an unrelenting predictability and i think part of that is because it, it's although it's bound to edgar rice Burroughs' tarzan work obviously it also is then by virtue of that bound up with the sanitize sanitization that has to come with that if you see what i mean i mean rice Burroughs, he was writing at a time i mean this is what this is uh the 10 the the tens the 20s the 30s he was writing at a time when basically the assumption was that wherever a white man dwelt then he would dominate and he was writing Tarzan stories between the world wars when fascism and racial superiority was, well, it was all the rage really. And um, so you don't really get any of that here, obviously, but at least not consciously anyway, but it's always there in the background. Um, yeah. And so really all you've got to go on is like the visuals and the songs. And although the songs are decent and they're nicely produced, they're not, it's not as catchy as or iconic as something like the jungle book where you kind of remember the, the tunes from it. I remember none of the tunes from this film. So, uh, and also um, my wife couldn't enjoy the movie because she, she just couldn't shake the idea that Tarzan would smell. The first time he like swings down on a vine to the, the hot woman that he bears, does she just go, Jesus Christ, what is that? Has someone, <laughs> someone eaten their own shit and, and burped? What is Can that? you change? Yeah. Can you please change that leather nappy for the lower girl? <laughs> leather nappy. Great band. Great band. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't know if, well, it's not, it's not some like forgotten classic from the Disney archives. It's just a slightly... I don't watch too many of these. I don't watch too many of, of, of too many Disney films and so on. But no. it, it, I get the sense, and I don't know if I'm right in this, but the, the vibe mm. I get is that in the late '90s, early 2000s, it was it, it, they kind of went to just being very basic and childreny, and then it was in the sort of latter half of the 2000s that it, they started being designed so there was like a it wasn't just like a sort of a moral core it mm. was actually it was actually bringing in more complex um, yes emotions understandable to children but appreciable by adults as well yes and i think the big part of that was the pixar acquisition um because i think they did 
they bought Pixar in maybe the early 2000s or it was around the time of Toy Story 2 maybe it's earlier then um but and I think that changed their whole attitude really like you say yeah bringing in more kind of adult themes but but at the same time somehow making them more enjoyable for children and see yeah there were a bunch of it was a weird like uh succession of Disney movies after Lion King so you had like um uh well you had Pocahontas which was oddly dark and boring um and then you had oddities like uh Hunchback of Notre Dame you had Mulan which is okay you had Hercules again which is okay had James Woods in it that one um yeah and then Tarzan and then uh, yeah so I suppose after that that's when they started well making some slightly more interesting films they did like lilo and stitch and stuff didn't they in the early 2000s these um, stuff i've never seen yeah well i mean i never watched them anyway but it was it was after my interest in it and being around you know having living back home and having younger children on where it was just on in the background that was when i was in my like late teens early 20s so i was just it was just a blank spot for me totally like i've heard of them all but i've no interest in watching them yeah um there there aren't really any hidden gems from around that period they're all just okay so it's not like oh you have to watch this so uh, but i do think there was definitely a, i think there was a big response after pocahontas because pocahontas was they chucked money at that movie and they thought it was going to be like massive and um and yeah and and they realized actually it was a bit boring and dark for kids so they they really did kidify a lot of the uh, their forthcoming films after that. So Pocahontas, so you'd say, is like the darkest that Disney got. Well, yeah, I mean, it is dark, but also just really, it's got a really weird washed out palette to the whole thing. And it is slightly dull. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. They couldn't find that balance yet. They hadn't found that balance between like appealing to older audiences whilst also entertaining youngsters. And that's what Pixar brought to Disney. And then of course it hit Disney hit their peak with the princess and the frog in 2009. What? Is that true? Of course it is. It's, it's the best Disney film ever made. Clearly. I mean, what else do you need? Keith David, for a start. So I need I say more, frankly. No, you don't really. Unless the end of the argument, as far as I'm concerned. I, I've, I've always held that my favourite um, Disney film is um, Robin Hood. But um, yeah. I haven't watched that, any of them in a while, so I dare say, well, at some point soon. The next one for me is a film that has been on my radar for a little while, and it was really brought to the forefront when um, Scott Adkins talked about it in his um, sadly stopped Art of Action uh, show that he was doing on YouTube during lockdown and it's a 2009 film directed by James McTeague called Ninja Assassin um, and it's produced by the Wachowski sisters now and have you seen this film or heard of it because it's, it's always been on my peripherals no so, it's James McTeague was it yeah 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 oh and I'm thinking of Lewis Teague who's directed Navy Seals sorry go on <laughs> Maybe it would have been better if he had. So the reason I, I, I this is sort of my radar recently is Scott. It's the star of this film. It's a uh, as you Ninja Assassin. The title tells you everything you need to know. Really, um, the star is a, a, a South Korean musician called Rain. I think he's like a boy band sort of musician. As far as I'm aware, I'm not aware of his music. Um, and he 
apparently trained for this film and he trained six hours a day for six months because he's no training in martial arts. And I remember Stott Adkins saying he was really impressed by his performance in the film. So obviously being a Scott fan, I thought, well, I'll chuck that on. And, and last night, actually, I watched it. And the, so the, the plot is um, that there's, I think they're called the Ozunu. I'll just say the clan. Actually, it'll be, oh, here we go. The, yeah, I was right. The Ozunu clan. Uh, led by none other than Sho Kasugi from Black Eagle, which we talked about last week. Um, he plays a really good part in this film, by the way. He is like, he is got gravitas. Um, he plays the leader of this clan of ninjas that are almost superhuman in their abilities, in blending into darkness. And there's a scene where he cuts his hand and proves that he can control his own blood and it doesn't come out and then it heals the wound uh, within seconds. So there's a light supernatural element to the whole thing. And Rain plays a a sort of a child ninja that is raised by Shokasugi in this this sort of mountain retreat, and they're effectively just tortured into being superhuman. Um, like they they walk across this, this sort of creaky wooden floorboards, and if they make a single noise, he whips their feet till they bleed, and then they're made to do it again. Um, mm -hmm. If anyone tries to escape, they're just killed, and if if they kind of show any kind of emotion um, or any. Uh, any sort of um, leniency in combat, uh, they, they're just basically beaten unconscious. So it's quite full on. And he, Rain plays a, a ninja who escapes from this and is now trying to stop them uh, in his 20s. And he looks fantastic. Like his, there are some scenes of sort of training montages with them, um, sort of these weird chain hook things and dual swords and shurikens. And it all, he looks great. You, you, if someone had told me like, oh yeah, he's like been a martial artist since childhood, I would just believe it. Um, <clears throat> But the problem with the film is, apart from the plot being really generic, like, you know, he is, he, uh, Naomi Harris plays a sort of um, an FBI agent that he befriends to try and take down this clan. And you know exactly how the plot is going to play out. He's going to meet up with it. They'll get chased. One of them will get kidnapped, you know, the catch back. And then there'll be a big showdown at yes. the end with the clan. Totally fine in this kind of film. But the problems lie elsewhere. It's made in 2009 and, and it is CG heavy to the point of it almost feeling like a visualized graphic novel. I'm not sure. I don't think it is based on a graphic novel because I think the Wachowskis created this as a vehicle for him because of how much they loved him in a film the previous year. I think it was called like Pacer or something. I don't know. Um, so the, the problem is that when it's just rain and when it's, when it's doing the really over-the-top stuff, like at the start where he takes down a tattoo parlor and he is just in the shadows, just just cutting off heads and you know they're just firing wildly not able to get a beat on him it's kind of cool you're like okay that's fine the blood is very bright and sort of cg like but the mm. problem is the whole film is dark uh, and, and, and as in sort of lighting dark so yeah what, what happens is you get these these people who are like clearly really top class sort of uh martial artists and experts of parkour and it's all flashy cuts so you don't really get any meat going on. Mm. Like there's a couple of sequences where he's swarmed by this clan of assassins, and it reminded me of the early Wolverine comics, where he's constantly being attacked in the 80s by uh, like ninjutsu called the Hand, where they just literally swarm at him, and there's this awesome fight. And as they're coming down, leaping through uh, the timber and coming through windows and ceilings, it looks amazing. Like you can tell, it's really perfectly choreographed, and they're all like all parkour experts. But then of course the fighting starts and there's so much blood, like huge waves of blood flying around and just people swinging around with blades. You've got no real sense of impact or what's going on. And it, it got, 
it kind of wore me down where I just and then when you were getting to the points where they were blending CG with real life skills, like when people start um like they actually turn into smoke and like fly out a window and you're like Ugh. it it was kind of it wasn't grounded enough in reality to be gritty and it was it it was kind of so light on the uh so so reliant on CG but with such a light supernatural element if that makes sense it kind of was in mm. the middle and i couldn't it wasn't like oh this is just like a silly comic book movie and it wasn't a good martial arts movie and it just felt a bit like a mishmash of both it didn't work um i uh, yeah so it's, there's not really much to say about it if you like i tell you what it reminded me of you know when I remember watching Seven Psychopaths and I felt the whole film, even though Tom Waits is in that film, I yes. spent the whole film felt like I was sitting there and someone was nudging me saying, oh, isn't that cool? Wasn't that line of dialogue cool? Wasn't that a cool scene? I felt I yes. felt like that when I was watching this. Like there was someone next to me trying to catch my out to say, it's good, isn't it? It ain't good. I like this. Mm. And it just, I couldn't shake that feeling. It's a bit of a generic title as well, not really, but I suppose... Yeah, I'm not, it seems a bit tautological, really, to say ninja assassin. I mean, I thought ninjas just were assassins. I don't know. Well, that's what they do in this film. They don't go to the cinema or like they go for walks in this film. It's just constant assassining. Right. So, okay. uh, yeah, it's a word. Don't look it up. Uh, I wonder the link with the Wachowskis, because you said it was made in 2009. Yes. It was around the same time that the Wachowskis made Speed Racer, which... Speed Racer, was, not Pacer. Yeah, that was with Rain in it, and that's where they yeah. discovered him. Yeah, yeah, and I think, um, and and that film was very weirdly CG heavy, in the in sort of quite unnecessary ways. If you if you remember, it was like constant like CG backgrounds and stuff like that. It was very oh, much. Oh yeah, that, there's, that there's a scene in this where Naomi Harris is talking to Ben Miles, and they're supposed to be outside by like a hot dog van or something, and I thought that is CG. They just sat at this desk, and it's like, why is this CG? They could mm. they could have filmed this anywhere. So yeah, it is very much like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was a that's a weird decision, mind you. I mean, Albert Pean made a whole film like that, didn't he? You missed a word out of that a, sentence, Rupert. A whole crap film. <laughs> that's exactly. <it. laughs> Nothing wrong with CG. I made a whole crap film where everything was CG. <laughs> Even my fingers are CG now. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Ninja Assassin then. Is there enough action to make it mindlessly watchable? Or is, yeah. uh, but if it's if it's weightless action, then that, I don't think that's going to feel... I just kind of wish, I mean, obviously this is that's 11 years ago and I have no idea what Rain has gone on to do now. But he, it was good to see Shokasugi in a good role. Like he is really threatening in this film and yeah. like takes no shit. That was cool. Um, after seeing him in Black Eagle, very different. Um, and in this film, like Rain is really cool, and you kind of wish it was made at a time when it wasn't so CG reliant. Like it was either a bit earlier or maybe now, because he's clearly capable. Mm. Um, and the story is kind of functional enough for it to be interesting. You know, lots of mythologizing of ninjas and all that sort of stuff. But then it's just the CG that just brings it down. It just it just felt real. It felt far older yeah. than it was. Oh dear. Okay. Um, right. Skip that one then. Uh, what's that on Prime? Uh, that is on no, it's Netflix. Wow, maybe Netflix is really catching up with the mediocre action films, isn't it? <laughs> um, Dark Waters is on Prime. Uh, 
and not to be confused with Dark Water, the uh, Japanese horror film from the early 2000s. Um, this is a true life drama based on a New York Times article about a young lawyer who reveals that a company called DuPont is dumping a chemical used to make Teflon into the water supply in West Virginia, uh, which is causing baby disfigurements and cancer amongst the residents. Um, and he fought for years, years to make their, to take them to court and make them take responsibility and pay for their crimes. And it really does cover years and years. It starts, the investigation starts out in the nineties and I think it goes through to like 2015. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's about 20 years, I think in total. Um, uh, it's, it stars Mark Ruffalo. Uh, he, he's very good as the somewhat, shall we say, beige Robert Billet is the guy, is the hero. Um, is Bill Pullman rocks up in a weird performance, weird twitchy performance as the main prosecutor. Um, he has been doing that a lot recently. I've seen him in two other things, and he's got the same weird, like eye squinty, never yeah. looking someone in the eye. Yeah. Yeah. It was weird. it was really odd. I don't know. There was it was like he seemed uncomfortable with a camera on him or something. I'm not quite sure. Um anyway, uh, Anne Hathaway is in it and she's fine, but she's got she's got the bog standard worried wife role really. She does have one really good scene where she gets to have a massive go at Tim Robbins. Um which is cool. Tim Robbins is actually really good in this. Um he's he's old enough now that he can play like really like thunderous kind of CEOs and stuff. So he's, um, yeah. And of course he's, cause he's quite, he's very, very tall in fact, and quite imposing. Um, he's, his kind of youthful cuteness has gone now. So, um, could be some interesting roles for him, uh, in latter years. Um, it's one of these, um, it's one of these kind of worthy dramas where, and there's some slightly forced action scenes and I put action in uh, quote marks because it's like the action here will be like really, really thunderous music. Um, uh, but it will just be like a helicopter flying over someone's house or or it will be Mark Ruffalo gingerly turning a key in his ignition um, as if it's going to blow up. But but I don't know. Those bits aren't that interesting. The real drama is in the kind of detail and. This is a basically a film about a man working out what chemical codes mean and then arguing about it with other men in badly lit rooms. And that's fine. That's what you need. Um, it, so it sounds almost like how Black Hat approached hacking. Yes. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I like, I, you don't need to jazz this stuff up. I mean, I, we're capable of just sitting down and watching people talking about awful things happening. But it's got... <laughs> It's got the usual kind of salt of the earth aspect. So you'll get, it's about a high flying lawyer. He's slumming it in a poor rural community. There's the, there's the inevitable kind of twist moment where a financial payoff is deemed not enough. They want, you know, they want justice. Uh, and you get all these scenes where uh, Mark Ruffalo will be going through paperwork and there'll be, it, and suddenly his eyes will widen and there'll be some revelation and he'll like stumble backwards uh, as he makes a discovery, which is quite ridiculous. But, yeah, you know, it's all pretty standard. And um, it's actually directed by Todd Haynes. And I know that name. He 
Todd Haynes is he's known for being a pretty stylish director. He made Velvet Goldmine uh, and he made Far From Heaven, which is really just a kind of very theatrical 50s style um, social drama. And then and he made a, a 1940s style melodrama, uh, Mildred Pierce for TV. And so he's quite stylistically interesting this is much more grounded than any of them and much more kind of standard if you like it's got a very muted palette and it's it kind of captures the the winter time of west virginia it's almost shot in a kind of magic light really um it does have some of that brooding elegance you get in a 70s paranoia thriller good. Uh, which is good so maybe we can say this is his 70s movie um it's ostensibly quite a lot like Aaron Brockovich, really, in terms of the plot, but with a slightly duller central character. But no doubt he is heroic. And but he's just he's quite he's he's not quite as immediately arresting as Aaron Brockovich was, put it that way. He's just a bit schlubby and quietly heroic. Um but it's a it's a really well made film and yeah, it's got a nice paranoid edge to it well acted it's solid but unremarkable it, it struggles to be really cinematic i'd say but but a worthwhile watch i think so and it is quite an amazing story the fact that it took it is quite a massive crime really and the fact that it took so long for him to get through to some kind of justice is quite incredible uh so yeah it is worth a watch that's on prime it's called dark waters the next one for me is a film called Forgotten, not The Forgotten with Julianne Moore from the mid-2000s. This is a 2017, uh, <laughs> the first of several of these for me, a South Korean thriller. Um, <clears throat> so this is a film where it starts off with a young man, he's like late, late teens, waking up in a car with his family, um, sort of an older brother that he idolises, who's kind of like a sports guru and also hyper intelligent as well as being really friendly um he's got a limp from a car accident when he was a kid and his mother and father are quite happily married and they go to a new house in in korea that they that he finds oddly familiar um and they sort of as they're settling to this house the father says that there's a there's a room like across from the shared bedroom the two brothers have quite weird considering they're like nearly 20 but there's a, a room a small sort of bedroom that they can't go in because the previous owner is storing stuff there and you know he's just asked if no one can go in there and sort of odd things keep happening uh, like he keeps on hearing noises from behind the room and his brother sort of he sees his brother get kidnapped and then 19 days later he just comes back and says he can't remember anything and then the family he notices things in the family around him like being a bit off like people speaking on the phone and putting it down whenever he walks in and he starts to thinks there's something untoward going on uh, this is actually a, i really like this because much like with um gaslit earlier on you know when you when things build and you think oh i'm really enjoying this don't collapse <laughs> you know that sense right. you have um and it doesn't it it, it, it does it, it's to the point that when when it when it starts to sort of after the sort of setup when it starts to ramp up it's you you kind of thinking is this a sci-fi film is it a horror is it like a drama is it a really dark comedy what's happening and i quite like that i watched it totally blind i would suggest that there's a jump scare 
in this film that is so good that I jumped and then I rewound it and I still jumped the second time. <laughs> you just um, had to go back to test yourself. I said, go back to I, the I was like, Jesus, it was so unexpected. Um, I don't want to say if there are more or less jump scares than that one because I'll be given. But yeah, this was um, one of my favourite films. It goes, it kind of... It builds and builds and builds, and then when it kind of says, "Right, okay, you know, this is this is where the plot is going," you, you kind of okay, and then you can follow it, and it and it, it maintains that um, it maintained my interest right up until the end, you know, and it, and it kind of uh, it didn't it didn't go too far out, and it it didn't feel like a bit of a cop out explanation, so uh, it's quite, it's a very pretty film. It's a very brightly lit kind of clean and crisp film. Um, and it's, there's some nice moments of tension in it. I'm trying not to say too much because obviously the the, the plot is uh, is quite funky. But um, yeah, if you if you do like um, Korean thrillers, which I really do at the moment, this is Forgotten 2017. It's on Netflix. It's it's one of the better ones I've seen. It's quite an interesting one. Not to be forgotten. Um, yeah. mm, that sounds good. So sorry, which channel was it on? Netflix. Netflix. I don't want to say it's hard to sort of talk too much about it without giving yeah. things away. So that's the problem with when you watch loads of thrillers like I do. You, you know, the fun is watching it unfold. Yeah. Um, well, the key is I, I noticed that with Gaslight or Gaslit, um, you're quite happy to just tell us everything because no one's going to watch it anyway because it's rubbish. Yes. But this is like, okay, go yeah. into a cold. You can't even talk about like h- how the actors are because that would in itself in this particular film would give away the plot. You if mentioned so that, and so was, yeah. yeah, you mentioned that um, that at times you it it's kind of switched genres or you weren't sure what kind of genre it really fell into. It got which to a I, point where I yeah I thought this has to be sci-fi and I'm not going to yeah. say if it is or isn't. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed that aspect. But what were you going to say, sorry? Yeah, well, I I just think that's a that's a very hard thing to do effectively because of course what can happen is that you can be watching something and just think it it can't settle on a tone, um, but it's exciting when you watch something which is really playing about with your expectations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I was waiting for this to... I think it's a testament to it because um, Faye, as you know, gets up like super early to go to work. And mm. this, I put this on quite late and, and even she made a point of like sitting up to watch it because she was like really intrigued where it was going to go. Um, so many times I look at you, Skyline, Eric Balfour and his face, that um, his massive long face, that's looking like a crap Matthew Lillard who's crap anyway. <laughs> um, that, that you watch a film Except and it like it go it goes somewhere. Yeah, apparently he's awesome now. That goes somewhere and you're like, oh, I was enjoying that. Never mind. But no, this this does yeah. keep it up to the end. And it's really yeah, I, I can't say anything because I'll give it away. Okay. <laughs> I can't even talk about. Uh, I'll I'll tell you in twenty years what I thought about it. Uh, okay, I have no problem spoiling the next film I'm talking about. <laughs> it's called Fugitives. Um. It's also known as Isolation. So this stars the always delightful Trisha Helfer of Battlestar Galactica and Lucifer and Tron Uprising fame uh, and a very wooden actor called Luke Mabley, British actor. Don't think I've seen him in anything else. Uh, So, yeah, they play their marriage is on the rocks. 
So he takes her to this plush villa in the Bahamas. So this first section is pretty slow and drab. It It's kind of like, remember in Blind Date, the old TV show used to have those holiday sections at the end. <laughs> You'd see the couples going on holiday. It was like that because they're not really acting like people repairing their relationship. They're, they're acting like people meeting for the first time, just purely lack of chemistry, I guess. But anyway, when they do start talking about the relationship, it turns out that he cheated on her uh, as if anyone would cheat on Trisha Helfer. But anyway, it turns out he cheated on her. And now they just appear to be two incompatible people who I think should probably just let it go. It seems like too much maintenance, their relationship. But anyway, whatever. So they, they're in the Bahamas. They um, they wake up the first morning. Um, and basically next door is making some noise, doing some re- renovations. And they get weirdly, this couple get weirdly angry about it. Um, but then they, so, but then they speak to the owners and they take up an offer to go down the coast and stay at a different place. And when they go down there, they're invited to dinner with Stephen Lang uh, and <laughs> his wife. This You can see the reason why I watched this in the first place. Stephen so, Lang yeah. isn't? Steve, yes. <laughs> um, so anyway, so Stephen Lang and his wife. And uh, Stephen Lang seems a bit unhinged. Turns out that uh, Stephen Lang and his wife, they're fugitives on the law, wanted for drug smuggling. Um now, while the happy couple, the newly happy couple, is there, they, um, their villa gets robbed, and the next morning they meet up with, <laughs> they meet up with Dominic Purcell and his much younger girlfriend. Is he looking for um, lines when they meet? <laughs> I didn't realise that Dominic Purcell is British. Did not realise that. Is he? Yeah. <laughs> um, and weirdly, and the only reason why I know that. Now it's because his accent's so dodgy in this film, and I thought, <laughs> I thought, hang about. I'm sure he's because I'm sure he's been perfectly serviceable in other films, but no, in this one he's just like he just. I don't know whether he's meant to be British or not. Anyway, because so we, we've seen him in every film I've seen him in, he's been yeah. doing either an Australian or an American accent, and I haven't thought anything of it. Yeah. Oh wow. Um. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I, it's weird. I, I don't know. He's, I mean, he's not the greatest actor on the planet, let's face it. Uh, but in this one, he's got the added, he's got the added pressure of, he obviously hadn't had his, uh, his voice training at this point. Mind you, this is only like five years old, so no excuses. Anyway, um, he's just been hanging around with Udo, uh, not Udo Kier, what's his name? Yui Bol too much. Um, anyway, so, uh, the thing about Dominic Purcell and his girlfriend in this, like they are, they're in the prologue, right? I, I'll go back to that anyway. So basically they meet up with um, Dominic Purcell and his younger girlfriend, and they are just as strange as Stephen Lang and his partner. Um, and it's at this point, it becomes very obvious what is going to transpire. Okay. So put it this way, right? In the prologue to this film, what happens is Dominic Purcell and his girlfriend uh, rock up at Stephen Lang's house. Stephen Lang threatens them with like a nail gun um, and they run away off the property. And then 
obviously later on we meet Stephen Lang. Uh, him and his wife are acting very suspiciously and they are fugitives from the law because they're for this drug smuggling thing. Um, it's pretty bloody obvious what is going to happen because, of course, the the real fugitives are not, in fact, Stephen Lang and his and his wife. They are Dominic Purcell and this other girl. We know this within seconds of meeting them. Seconds. This sounds like this the is perfect getaway. The this sounds like the plot, like lifted oh, up yeah. on a continent to the perfect yeah, getaway. Yeah, yeah. It's basically that. Yeah, and um, yeah. So we know that, and it means that the really, really tedious scenes um, where they're interacting with Dominic Purcell. And they're saying, oh, my God, Stephen Lang's such a maniac They, you know, it was the, they arranged all this to steal all our stuff. So they because th their theory is, is that they went to Stephen Lang's house and got someone else to go back to the to their villa and steal all their stuff. Uh, anyway, so this is their theory. But of course, we know that that clearly Dominic Purcell is the dodgy one. So, yes, a perfect getaway is really what it's um really what it's based on and that was an infinitely better thriller so this film it's just got it's awful pacing really bland photography stilted acting shoddy editing loads of little continuity quirks just utterly inert action scenes i think you've just and named all of the seven dwarves <laughs> well, like and so many bits where you're just like, why, why, why would that happen? Like there's there's a bit where Dominic Purcell takes I don't care about spoiling any of this. <laughs> Dominic Purcell takes the guy, one of the um, takes the husband out into the middle, Luke Mabley, out into the middle of the ocean, obviously to kill him. Um, goes to kill him, fails. Luke Mabley jumps in the ocean, so he's in the middle of the ocean, like like has to come up for air rather than just waiting for him to come up for air and shooting him when he comes up for air. Um, Dominic Purcell just drives the boat off and just leaves him in the sea. It's like, right. Okay. We can just pop and, up and... <laughs> and yeah. And then, and then once, so Luke Mabley's in the ocean. So he's, he's like miles from land. And then there's this scene where like all these hungry sharks start circling underneath him. And it's like, he's in real peril. Cut to the next scene. He is on the shore. He is oh, on the shore, toweling himself Batman. down. He did yeah. a Batman. <laughs> did he did a face off? Um, yeah. So, and then the final half hour is just this empty slog through thriller cliches. You've got people running through woods, tying up bad guys badly, having a fist fight, and then the gun slithers across the floor. That kind of stuff. Uh, and it shouldn't be happening now. It shouldn't I know. It, it absolutely shouldn't happen. And there's also, uh, to make it matters even worse, there's there's a hint of Jack Reacher syndrome in the uh, in the couple in the film, Dominic Purcell, who is too old for this woman. But anyway, um, there's so they there's this whole midsection where they're going on about, especially she is going on about how marriage is a dull and lifeless pursuit and you can't possibly remain interested in the same person your whole life um and it's like it's meant to be like oh that's really thought-provoking but the the 
idiotic script is completely unpersuasive. So it's one and, of those things that when someone says something like that, it, it mm. says much more about that person than the thing they're referring it's, to. So. Yeah. And especially when it's like some stupid, like 20 year old girl who's just who can't string a sentence together. Anyway. Uh, yes. Yeah, so terrible. Lang is brilliant, obviously, but he's on He's barely in the film. And I mean, he's he's out of the film way before the end. And as soon as he's gone, all of my interest has vanished. But he's he's so good because he, he's so good at doing these sorts of like ambiguously menacing roles. <sighs> and Stephen he's Lang's got that roles. old man. He's got that old man buff thing going on. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. What a fucking man. Um, <laughs> what a man Stephen Lang is. We should just change the podcast to the Stephen Lang appreciation. Group. I know. I literally just typed Stephen Lang into Prime. And, <laughs> and you haven't yes. even got a keyboard. Yeah. It's, so, yeah, it's so on top of everything, it's a waste of, I, I wouldn't quite say a good cast, but Trisha Helfer and Stephen Lang are good. And what are they doing in this? Who knows? The one question I have before we move on to my next film, which is mm. the 2004 version of The Punisher with Thomas Jane. With. In this film, the one, the one, because I enjoyed the Perfect Getaway. It's a film yeah. that I know I will watch again at some point. But with the one bugbear I had with that film mm. was, and I can't remember if we spoiled it or not, so I won't now. But the okay. two main characters, who were actually the evil ones, we are treated to many private conversations that they have that doesn't make sense apart from to confuse the audience because yeah. they. They, if they knew their true motives, they wouldn't talk to each other in character, if you know what I mean. So does yes. that happen in this at all? No. To be fair, it doesn't. But um, it's more the way, yeah, it's more the way it's set up. Because, of course, the film sets it up so Stephen Lang and his wife are really, really suspicious and literally on the run from the law. So you know instantly they're not going to be the ones who are going to be the threat. And then Dominic Purcell comes along and just looking like a massive bruiser and him and his wife start or girlfriend start going on about how marriage is for losers and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. By the way, so after this massive monologue about how uh, marriage is for losers and and uh, and all this kind of stuff and how it's all really life is really fragile and stuff. Um, Trisha Helford just goes up and has a has a nap in their bed. It's like, really? This is really creepy couple who are basically just trying to deconstruct your whole life and you've just gone up and slept in their room. Brilliant. Rubbish. <laughs> and that was Fugitives on I'm Gonna Get Fugitives. Prime. It is on Prime. Fugitives, a.k.a. Isolation. So I watched at least it wasn't um at least it wasn't like gaslit where it's like fugitives aka dominic purcell is the killer um <laughs> using the actor's name as well. um the punisher 2004 is a film that until watching it again is a film i used to hold, really hold close to my heart and i think there's a lot of reasons for it so i'm a big fan of the punisher graphic novels the punisher uh, comics and wolverine and batman are the only ones i kind of keep relatively up to date with and i will yeah. i will buy the collections um and i know that the punisher is very much like a morally bankrupt character but i understand that it's it's like a, a fictional comic that i have fun reading and it's it doesn't 
it doesn't harbour my hidden fantasies of just going on a murdering rampage and it doesn't stand up in real life, Rupert. A lot of people mm. seem to have trouble making that distinction. I enjoy it as, as a fictional entertainment. So I like that. And, and I think I, when I watch this film, and I watch this film, I would say I've seen it about 15 to 20 times in my life over the years, but I haven't watched it for about 10 years. And I, I loved it. When I was younger, it came out and I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. And, you know, they're going to make a load of these films. And I liked Thomas Jane and I was getting hips deep. And then, of course, it didn't do well, collapsed. They may punish a war zone with Ray Stevenson, which I'll, I'll probably watch to talk about when I've got a fresher take on it. And mm. I know Thomas Jane loved the character to the point he helped finance uh, one called Laundry Room with Ron Pillman in it. Good, like a little 15 minute um, short that was really cool as a sort of sign off to the character. All good. Everyone has good intentions. So, but I went into this film instead of just thinking like chuck it on bottle of wine you know it's like an old friend i watched it with the intent purpose of it of kind of reevaluating it for kino kingdom and right. and i and i realized that it's 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 like um I'm trying to think of another example of this i've i've done this again with another film recently where you watch it and you just think oh it's like, it's such an almost ran it's so close. Yeah. So for, for those that don't, for those that don't know, uh, the Punisher is the, the main. This basically tells the origin story, and a mixture of uh, the latter part of the film is uh, taken from the Punisher Max series, I think by Garth Ennis. And the the story is that the Punisher is a character uh, who sees his family killed by effectively members of the mob, and he then dedicates his. They leave him for dead. He comes back and dedicates his life to just attacking the mob and killing those who had killed his family. In this film, the head of the kind of mob who had his family killed is Howard Saint, who is played by John Travolta, and Will Patton, who um, I will speak about <laughs> at length in a minute. Um, and, <laughs> and this is obviously one of Roy Scheider's last films. He plays Thomas J, the Punisher's father, which is cool. Um, ben Foster's in this being completely reliable as usual because he, yeah. he gets hips deep in his characters. He doesn't give a hoot he how he looks. About, does he? I do like that, man. And whether it be, he is always one of the best things in a film, whether it be um, something like Murder by Numbers or The Punisher or 30 Days of Night or um, Warcraft, he's always good. Anyway. Yeah. It does Will Patton whistle any of his S's in this film? <laughs> Have you seen it then? <laughs> <laughs> Stop the car. Stop the goddamn car. That's one of the best lines in Fled, 1996 of his finest. What a, That man should have more leading roles in films. Come on, get him and Steve in a film together. My God. I'd set fire to everything I've ever seen. It'd take ages. I'd probably go through about nine lighters. But this is just like... Cole, Cole, <laughs> he is. In this, actually, he's kind of a... He's a closeted homosexual from the deep south. He's got like really big like Elvis sideys on the go as well. Good. Um, Gaylan Hood produced this. She did Terminator as well, didn't she? Good woman. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, so, so the, the, this film, I I can see why I loved it because the only apart from like the the arc, if you go through the Punisher in media, right? You had the Punisher became a character in the mid nineties as like an enemy of Spider Man. In nineteen eighty nine, they made the Dolph Lundgren film, which is completely fine because it's so ridiculous. You can just watch it almost outside of Punisher canon and just have yeah. a laugh at like how ridiculous it is. And it is a film that you should watch with your friends. Yeah. I, I point to the scene where Lou Gossett Jr. says, I'll talk some sense into him, and then goes into his prison cell, grabs him by the shoulders and just shouts, let me in, let me in, and then slaps him and walks out again. Not what psychologists normally do. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. Anyway, um, so, yeah, 
Thomas Jane is brilliant in this. Um, like you know, his his, his family. Samantha Mathis again for a second time in two weeks plays his wife, uh, and he is bereft. And then he not, comes back. Not and he Samantha Janus. Yeah. No, not Samantha Womack. <laughs> um, and yeah, so he comes back, and he is a physical presence. He's he's like six foot. He is completely ripped, and he's got a real. Thomas Jane has got a very good deep raspy voice that he uses to effect in this. And he is like a force to be reckoned with. The problem is the film is pulling in too many directions. It's not like I remember watching Punisher Warzone after this and it it's much more focused on the character. It's much more like he is a, he is a man who is just driven and it's just him doing a series of awful things to awful people, which is kind of what the fans want. But with this, it, it's, I, I don't know how long it is. I'm just looking at this now. It's two hours long anyway. And apparently the original version was three hours long. And I kind of would have liked to see that because it's almost like they made the film that the fans would like, but wouldn't really make money, which I think is what Thomas Jane wanted. And then they hacked it back to be palatable and it ended up pleasing no one. Because you you can see moments in it where he he which are kind of almost like vignettes where it will cut to a scene, almost a side where he finds a, like a henchman. And he's, there's like a little set piece where he's killing them in a specific way. And he says a couple of cool lines and walks off. And then they, you know, basically kill mm-hmm. themselves by, you know, in a sort of saw-like fashion. And that's very much lifted from the comics. But in, in trying to make it sort of a bit lighthearted and have a few jokey characters in there and spread itself a bit thin and focus like spend quite a lot of time on the familial side it kind of ends up not being much of anything and and you can see with the hard cuts where they took the good stuff out when you know like the end the end sort of thing where he goes into a casino and takes down tom um john travolta's character howard saint and he and you know there's a cut where he works his way through the building and Mm. And there's like some like 40 minutes of solid gold, but it's just cut down to like two or three minutes of just gunshots and heads exploding. And you're like, oh, I kind of wish I was watching like another cut of this. And that yeah. watching it now, that's how I and I can understand because you can see there are flashes of gold in the film. Uh, and I, I obviously I'm speaking as a fan of the character where you know that Thomas Jane must have seen the original full cut and thought, oh, good, this is the film I wanted to make. Then an yeah. hour got hacked off and it's like, that is not what we did. <laughs> do you think maybe if it was well i suppose nowadays it would be a tv show which it is yeah, yeah. but maybe maybe audiences would be more open to something a bit longer these days to, to be honest i'm surprised that after um uh, john bernthal's punisher which was great although i do think he was better used in small doses in the daredevil show mm. uh, where it had much more impact um where when that got big and, and everyone had a huge interest in the Punisher, they should have released a first-person shooter. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the first start, because, I will say that the, the the PS2 version of the Punisher is one of the best games on the system. Still, Thomas Jane does the voiceover good. good. Um, so I thought they would knock on an amazing game that I'd be hips deep into, and because uh, this is only like what two years ago, and they mm. would do a recut of this film, and neither, neither happened, and it's. I don't know. Punisher fans get a we get a raw deal. Punisher fans. Yeah. Or we just go back and watch raw deal. I would swallow my whiskey, my awful whiskey, by the way. Uh, otherwise, I would have made the same joke. Mm. Um, so yeah, this was a bit of a. I think I will watch it again at some point, but only because, you know, 
I, I don't watch TV that much. So I basically, if I want my Punisher movie fix, it's this or Dolph Lundgren or Ray Stevenson. So I don't know. Maybe uh, the uh, these TV. are all men that I love. So I've got. Yeah, no, it's totally fine. And Warzone got really slated for being, that was 2008, I think, for being really nasty. Um, right. Doug Hutchison was in it as a, as a character called Matchstick, I think. And he is foul in that film, but he's always good at playing foul characters. Mm. It's kind of part parcel of. Right. It is kind of part and parcel of the Punisher, though. Nastiness. I mean, you can't yeah. really. Yeah, it's like watching a Saw movie and saying, "Oh, oh, that's a bit much." Well, that's the thing. It's like he he kills what he deems bad people. Boom. And the thing is, it's so direct and so well explored in the comics that whenever they bring anything into it, any other aspect of... Whenever they tried to add a third or even second dimension to it, it's like, no, yeah. that's not what I want. But, exactly. Uh, yeah. It's like Judge Dredd taking his helmet off. You just, just... You don't need that aspect of it. That is taking it away from the essence of what that character is. Anyway, so where is that available? Then. That is uh, one last thing about Will Patton. That was I had to pay for that, and that was an Amazon Prime. Um, Will Patton, there's a line in this film that I've always loved. I think it's amazing, and in in a film that is bereft of emotional impact, effectively beyond the the, the sort of introduction sequence where the family get killed. There's a scene where the Punisher basically tricks Howard Saint into thinking that Will Patton, his main henchman, is sleeping with his wife, but he's actually mm. like a, a closeted gay man. And, there's, and, and Will Patton idolises Howard Saint. And there's a scene where he just refuses to fight back as he gets, like, stabbed to death by John Travolta really slowly, constantly stabbed. And, he, and there's a scene where he hugs him and says, Howard, you're killing me. And it's heartbreaking. In, 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 in a film like this kind of one-dimensional, it's like, oh, Will, we love you. I watched this. I watched this Punisher at the cinema when it came out, but I must say I don't remember a lot about it. Is it? I may return to it. Perhaps I won't pay for it though. That's fine. I'll watch it with you. Yeah. Thanks. Three knockers on the head. Check it out. This is the Dolph Lundgren version, where one of them is wearing red stilettos for no reason when they're being tortured. Bizarre. Bizarre. I notice that. Um, just an aside about Netflix, the watch party thing is actually built into it now. So you can actually set up watch parties from within Netflix, which is good. Is that a hashtag just saying? <laughs> hashtag yes. Uh, right. Speaking of Netflix, I watched Fahrenheit 11.9, 11 slash 9, uh, which is Michael Moore's 2018 documentary about how on earth Donald Trump was elected president of the United States in 2016. Uh, it is a player. The title is a play on his own documentary from 2004 called Fahrenheit 9-11, which was a kind of uh, analysis of the um, Bush administration. So anyway, so Michael Moore, he starts out with the 2016 election and then tracks back a few years, showing some of the errors that were made in the Democratic Party, including an astonishing PR blunder by Barack Obama in Michigan, which I never knew about. But that's very interesting. Anyway, um, and so, yeah, some of the mistakes that were made that paved the way for someone of Trump's temperament. Uh, this is Michael Moore. 
So it is sort of playful, very aggressive, very partisan. Look at the issues. He he's absolutely got no problem taking a side. And I I do like I like the way that Michael Moore takes these colossal detours and um before coming back to the main point. And he'll like throw in these little disarming moments like like at the start he says there's one person i blame for trump becoming president and that's gwen stefani uh, because uh, it was something to do with a um it was something to do with some uh, like talent show or something like that her getting um paid more than him on some talent show anyway so anyway he takes a detour into flint michigan as he does quite often because he's from from Flint, Michigan, and he starts talking about the water supplies there. In fact, this is a bit of a link to Dark Waters, in fact, yeah. in a way. But um, and the two Jakes, and you're and you're wondering, you're wondering how he is going to link it to the election in 2016. But he does, to be fair. So he does, as is his style. He does delve into some pretty hyperbolic territory, um, like when he starts intercutting shots of. Hitler making speeches in the 1930s with Trump making speeches, which is a bit of a stretch. Um, but uh, and even more so now, actually, that Trump increased his vote amongst minorities. So that doesn't quite make as much sense now. But anyway, um, but he Michael Moore is he's unapologetically a believer in youth protest and socialist ideas. And and it, he he made a film called Bowling for Columbine a few years back, and that was all about um, basically the gun culture of the US. And he he leans a lot into that in this film as well. Um, and it seems he like a lot of ground he's covered before with gun culture. It, it is, and and actually, it's it kind of dates the film a little bit because he goes on on a lot. He focuses a lot on. Um, gun violence and um, mass shootings and stuff, which was, to be fair, um, like the main issue at the time in 2018. But things move quickly. And in 2020, I mean, it really wasn't even a factor in the US election, as far as I know. So, yeah, it would be it would be interesting to hear his take on the latest election um, because it's got much more to do with race relations, really, than um gun culture but anyway but maybe that's next i don't know so it's it is a fairly powerful and very polemical documentary and it is quite funny sometimes um i'm not sure about his practical jokes like where he pumps a load of flint water into the garden of um some congressman it wasn't just seemed a bit annoying really um so there's no real attempt at any kind of balance or nuance and it's definitely preaching to the choir but uh yeah it's it, michael moore makes very accessible and enjoyable albeit very one-sided documentaries but yeah it's all right yeah, they're basically audio visual echo chambers aren't they His oh movies. big time yeah really? totally yeah i like and it seems i, I don't know like in this day and age, it can it feels a bit different to what it was like. Well, even when he made something like well Fahrenheit 9/11, because of course back then 
there wasn't this um gonzo documentary stuff no we didn't have so much you know we didn't have youtube well we did have youtube but it it wasn't didn't quite have this whole kind of counter culture um media which was accessible online sort of thing so really people like michael moore were the only uh alternative to mainstream media but now we have quite a lot of different voices so him making these sorts of very very uh bombastic one-sided documentaries it feels a little bit dated in style uh, but i don't think he's ever going to make he's never going to make a kind of sit down and talk to people in a sober fashion type documentary you, the, the terms used then like the, the sort of the way that things have changed and how it felt dated did you get i know it's a different film vibes of the second borat film he, well yes in a way like like culture culture has moved on so much that it kind of renders these things a little bit dated in their style i think it was more of a problem with borat because that was trying to bridge the divide between reality and um and fiction in a very ambiguous and quite unsatisfying way this is completely partisan and and he knows it and we know it and it, it's like it's so ridiculous that you almost can't take it seriously but at the same time I only mean, makes some good points and it, it and the way it's edited it it is quite funny the way it's edited it's just i don't know i think if you're really serious about looking into some of the issues about what it is that allowed trump to come into power i don't think this is going to be the definitive answer for what you're looking for but it's enjoyable enough mirrors now this isn't a south korean thriller or horror you'd be pleased to know i've gone off that it's a remake of a south korean horror from 2003 that was americanized and released in 2008 and this is a, a film starring Kiefer sutherland who we are going to spend a few minutes discussing mm. um have you seen this film by the way new no. right so this is this is one of the most generic films i've ever seen like it's it is on a plinth of mediocrity so the story is that Kiva Sutherland, this is, bear in mind this was 2008, so I'm assuming it was still when he was Jack Bauer and things up, or at the tail end of it anyway. Um, it is filmed in Romania, where all the best films are filmed. <laughs> um, uh, not on an industrial estate, though, but near a burnt-down shopping mall. So, <laughs> hey, you get that rich tapestry of the history Brilliant. of the country. And the... So, yeah, this is a film. This is a remake of a 2003 uh, Korean film. And... Kiefer Sutherland plays uh, an ex-cop who uh, basically got on the cans too hard. Pardon me, shot an undercover cop and has now got a job, starting his first job as a security guard at a, it's set in America, but obviously it's filmed in Romania, um, at a, an old uh, shopping mall called the Mayflower that was burned down uh, five years before. And it's just, you know, in a cabin outside, just making sure nothing bonky happens and no one breaks in. So... The film relates to how the previous security guard 
was basically driven insane by the mirrors in this. If you can imagine, um, you, you know, you know, um, what's that place called? That cocktail bar we like in town, not called Barocco. What's it called? Um, it's called Barocco, isn't it? It's called Barocco, is it? Yeah. Yeah, that huge mirror that every time I'm in yes. there order, yeah. ordering an old fashioned, I think, who cleans that? Um, it, it, imagine that throughout an entire building, like really opulent kind of, um, you know, 1920s enormous art deco mirror things. So this this place is full of them, and it's a completely decrepit. And he's just spends his evenings walking around it, and it becomes clear that there's more to more to it than meets the eye. I'm not going to say any more about the plot because it doesn't matter. Right, the whole film doesn't really matter because Kiefer Sutherland. I, I know he was a different character in Lost Boys, but I think since he was Jack Bauer in 24, I don't know if he can do anything else. Because <laughs> it's almost like people sit, people sit in a room and say, right, we're making, we're making a horror where someone is, is going to lose their mind. So we need someone who's a bit of an everyman, non-threatening, sounds really good shouting, but can also do a convincing cry. I mean, give give Kiefer a ring, please. And that's he spends the whole film doing this where he's obviously separated from his family played by paula Patton, who's an attractive woman um and yes. it's one of those films where people just react to everything like they're in a film so he he goes there he's obviously got a, a gun and a torch and he's wandering around and he'll see like his reflection doing something different or he'll touch a mirror and have a vision of something awful and then it'll cut to him in his house in his, in his family house with his kids like huddled in with a nanny, frightened as he goes around and paints all the mirrors green so they can't see the reflections. And then his wife will say, what are you doing? And instead of him sitting down and explaining what's happening, he'll <sighs> just pull out a gun and just start shooting in the mirrors and saying, look, look, they'll, they'll, they'll reheal in a minute. And then they don't. And you're like, well, now you're just coming in like a, a you know, a, 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 a history of alcoholism and drug abuse mm. and like, using a firearm in your family house shooting at mirrors and windows so what right. do you think is going to happen and it's the whole a stir of echoes syndrome yes massive overreactions to things amy smart is in this film for just about two seconds longer than i am because it's like she turns up and i was like oh amy oh she's gone okay that was, that was like, bye amy <laughs> hope you're okay hope you're not down the job center um yeah and it's just the film is just made more baffling by the fact that apparently the director um alexandra aja took the original script and said no it's it's too generic and then like put his own spin on it and then genuinely made the most generic horror i've ever seen because it's not scary it's not interesting it's just Kiefer sutherland in one scene crying and in another scene shouting and it just goes on for like 90 minutes and then it's done and it does that thing as well of like because the film is called mirrors i'm looking at the poster now and one of the r's is backwards and in the film there's lots of like reflections of things and you can almost imagine the director going hey 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 it's uh, so the whole thing it's like really really teenage level uh kind of um takes on things it's a film that i think even some of them actually helped produce this it does not need to be seen because it's so flat and lifeless that it's and it's because it's just filmed in this kind of dismal burnt down mall you with all these mannequins scattered on the floor and broken glass everywhere you're like well I'm, it's not pretty to look at it's not fun to find out what happens next because i know exactly where this is going even the final like last minute twist is just sigh inducing so <laughs> and then they knocked out a sequel and i'm going to tell you who stars in that sequel nick Stahl. 
Is he the guy from Terminator 3? Yes. Oh, and uh, weirdly, William Cat. Oh, I might watch that. (laughs) (laughs) William Cat of White, what is it, White Ghost? White Ghost, don't you have that? I'll don't pretend you. My God, what a man. Hang on, let me just have a look. Oh, he is in it. He is in it for like a a decent amount. So I might watch that. Mirrors 2 with William Cat. Let's change everything. Anyway. William Cat looks like a uh, a prog rock guitarist nowadays, like a proper old school. Like he was in a band in the in the seventies, and now he's still doing gigs. He looks nothing like Jeff Lynne. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) But I know you mean he's got this like white shock of white hair, styled with a soul patch and a beard. Boom. I do love William Cat. He was. He had been to the gymnasium when he filmed White Ghost. But yeah, Mirrors 2000. I'm going to watch the, because I love Korean films, I'm going to watch the um, the original. But yeah, this is just one of those things you think, why have you done a remake for a start? Uh, but I get, it, I guess it got caught up in all of that ring stuff, didn't it? 2008. Oh, God, yeah. The tail end of all that kind of stuff. Um, it's, yeah. yeah. And that's what I was going to say to you. Kiefer Sutherland, is he just, in every film, is he just Kiefer Sutherland? Uh... Pretty much. I'm trying to think of I'm trying to think of something where he really showed any kind of range. But yeah, he's pretty much just like that slightly fraught, angry, desperate kind of shouting person. He's good at panicking and shouting and being upset. Yeah. He's good, good but it, it happens in every film I see him in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of any any Anything where he's really broken free of that. I mean, he was in Fire Walk with me, the um, David Lynch film, Twin Peaks uh, prequel. Too Rupert or whatever, that doesn't count. No, and also, let's face it, I mean, it's it's not going to be a normal performance of his David Lynch film. Yes, so. he'll, he'll pop up in another film I talk about in a bit. Um, for like he plays a, like a really short part in it. But he also, if you look at any picture of him in the last 10, 15 years, he really needs to like have the back of his head blended in because it's almost like a mullet that it's not instead of going like down and out mm. he c- curls it round his neck uh, and it uh, yeah he needs to sort that out Michael <laughs> say that 400 times and we'll do a Lost Boys rerun <laughs> uh, so that is on what you know it is on Prime <laughs> So is <laughs> so is Hellmaster, also known as Soul Stealer, and also known as, when I swear when the titles came up the title was them, so I don't know there it seems to be multiple titles for this one, but we'll go with Hellmaster. This was released in 1992. It's a, a horror movie released in 1992, uh, but I'm not so sure about the 1992 thing because all the hair and clothes and synth speak of 80s horror. <laughs> the, hair, the clothes, the synth, the Walkermans, <laughs> the Nintendo. Yeah. The titles coming up, which say copyright 1987. Um, yeah, so it's clearly trading off Hellraiser, as we've already seen with the poster with its pinhead style monster. It is nothing like Hellraiser. Although there is one line where John Saxon says, with pleasure comes pain. No. Mm. But, which isn't even strictly true, because 
I do lots of pleasurable things which do not involve pain, but anyway. Yeah, you watched White Ghost and you were quite comfortable, weren't you? Yeah, it's very comfortable. Very comfortable, except with William Cat's hair. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, set in uh, a kind of college university called the Kant Institute, and there's, uh, there's this... Um, the rumor is that the college was previously used uh, for um, this experimental drugs um, project uh, where students were experimented on 20 years ago. Um, John Saxon, the aforementioned John Saxon of Nightmare on Elm Street fame, he plays someone called Papa Jones and he is the madman who created this experiment and basically he just turns up with a Bible bus full of crazy students, um, the remnants of that experiment. Um, and they're here to inject the next generation of mutants. Um, there's a reporter who looks like a young Donald Sutherland who hunts the mutants with a crossbow filled with a vaccine. And there are the usual students themselves who are just fodder. Uh, it, it's, ba it's a basic slasher, really, on college grounds. Uh, where the slightly mutated remnants of the drugs experiment just rampage through the place. College kids get separated, um, get picked off by these mutants. All, it sounds, all it of, sounds good so far. It sounds, it sounds like a potential, all the while being egged on by John Saxon and his unwieldy hair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the acting is astonishing in this film i mean it is plan nine levels of ineptitude like it's like the actors are reading off scraps of paper um like sellotape to parts of the scenery the main characters get a bit of introduction at the start but it's really the faintest sketching really because it becomes basically irrelevant once the killing starts you've got usual uh kind of stereotypes you've got um the awkward geeky guy who's on crutches you've got his hot kindly friend who's clearly going to become the final girl you have an angry rebellious teen and oh and there's the, there's the jock type person who also happens to be a glamour photographer which i think is just to have an excuse to have some topless women in the film so he's meant to be a student and he looks about 40 he looks like martin kemp in eastenders <laughs> now <laughs> um it's ridiculous it's a preposterous film there's a scene where a cop is dragged along by a car for presumably miles and the car stops his bloodied body like dragged along behind it he, he gets up he gets up crawls away he's fine i don't think that would happen anyway um it's not really clear why things happen the way they do like why is it that no one seems to be trying to get off the college campus and go and get the cops. Seems a bit weird. Um, what else? One of them, one of the mutants looks like Mark Alman from soft cell. Is that <laughs> again, <laughs> you had to go at me for talking about David Braben last week. And it's just, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Some of the makeup effects are kind of creepy. Uh, but there's no real tension or anything in any of the horror. You, know, you don't expect a film like a slash, an 80s style slasher like this to be scary as such, more just kind of horrifying. And 
but there's no real tension in it and and most of the deaths come about because of incompetence rather than any real threat um and and the kills are really disappointing in that they, they really lack gore um it has a tendency the film to intercut different what's going on with different characters so you have different like pursuits and different deaths happening at the same time but the editing is so pure uh, it's so poor it just gets confusing um the camera work and lighting is okay there's some really irrelevant use of slow motion um it feels like an 80s horror because it's it's gaudy and kind of wanton in its style but uh, and, and it does have a sense of fun without being self-referential or winking um because we haven't really got to that stage yet i suppose in horror history so tonally it gets it right but um it's tonally it's right but it's just so badly made that you just yeah the idea probably the most dated part of it is the idea that this john saxon this middle-aged man could come along and have this level of kind of authority and influence over college students because he's not persuasive at all in his kind of preaching. Um, but I suppose, I mean, it's you've got 20 minutes of character building and then it's just kills and chases and mutations and stuff. So you'd get decent bang for your buck, but just no actual film quality. I'm watching uh, this. I'm watching this. But the music, <sighs> it's good, good synth work. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh yeah weirdly yeah it's odd this synth I mean, there's some oddly like quite i don't know emotive synth work in it which in a better film would work really well but in this it's like well okay it's just good music in a bad film really so that's hellmaster aka soul stealer is it on Prime by any chance? Of course it is. I'm watching that. I'm watching it tonight. <laughs> uh, you every time you, you honestly that whole review, I had my eyes shut and I was nodding. I knew, I knew it was gonna call me. <laughs> ah, these flashes, you little buggers. Um, <laughs> right, I'm gonna do something I've never done before, and I'm gonna talk about a South Korean horror film. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Now this is the call, not that one with Halle Berry, which I've already covered in a previous podcast. Uh, but it is based on a film from 2011 called The Caller, which is a British film. And if memory serves, it wasn't very good. But this film, um, whilst it basically has the mechanic of the same mechanic as that 2011 horror from Britain, where um, someone can call into the past and they can change their own past, you know, the cost of, of their own future. And mm. Kind of a butterfly effect type thing. Yes, and I put it to you, Rupert, that it suffers from the same issues as the butterfly ah, right, effect. Yeah. So, the, the, this, uh, this, uh, um, the film starts off and it's um, a, a woman who's, uh, it says here, 28 years old, late 20s, looks about 20, and is going back to, um, actually she is an actress from another film I've seen, um, which I'm going to talk about in a bit. So this is, uh, she's heading back to a sort of family home, which is like a really idiosyncratically designed, oddly architected sort of building, um, completely rural, but like really modern, really weirdly modern looking. Um, and she goes back to family on for reasons kind of unexplained really just coming back from uni i guess even though she's 30 and she's lost her mobile phone and she realizes that when she 
she answers a call on her the, the, the sort of cordless house phone which is from the 90s because it's been um, empty since then and she can talk to the person who lived in your house 28 years before and she realizes that sorry um, it's about 20 years before and she realizes that in talking to the person she can uh, then alter her future in that you know she can bring her father back from the dead by making this girl go around her house and turn the gas off that led to an explosion explosion uh. 20 years ago that kind of thing now so it's the a... butterfly effect meets the lake house <laughs> <laughs> is that like is that the one with sandra bullock and, and um Kennedy? i'm never gonna watch that film uh, so yeah so again this is a film you can't really say too much about without spoiling it because i this is probably uh, and this is probably the most mediocre south korean film i've seen okay. i've watched i'd say i've watched about 15 to 20 of them over the last couple of years and this and whilst i still enjoyed it mm. It, it, it just missed the mark. So, the the two main characters are really well played. Like the the the, um, the sort of main girl Park Shin Hye from uh, the sort of current time is is really believable. She's really kind of innocent, and she's just so happy to kind of have her family back as as one unit. And then the other the other character, I, I I'm gonna mess up these names. So I'm just having a quick look now. Sorry, so Jeon Jong Seo is the modern sort of girl, and Park Shin Hai is a the person from the sort of eighties, uh, late eighties, who is um, mm. who is altering altering the um, history to affect the future. Mm. And the, her her sort of stepmother is is convinced that she, uh, the girl back in the eighties, um, Park Shin Hai, is is kind of possessed by the devil. Not nothing to do with the. Um, fixing the future because she just thinks she's on the phone all the time she's got but she believes that there's like a lot of death in the future and she needs to kill her and she she's very kind of um isolated and socially awkward so this film starts off with you feeling very sorry for her and it ends in a different place but what i took away from the film is that Park Shinhai. It's her second film. Apparently, she was previously in a film. This is a 2020 film, and her previous and first film was a film called The Burning, not that one from 2018. And she's amazing in this. Mm-hmm. Like she has got this weird ability to go from being um, childlike, um, innocent, to, to troubled, to sexy and seductive and bonkers in the space of like a minute it's really bizarre how kind Mm of malleable she is as a performer so and that kind of carries the film and holds your interest the problem is two things but i could kind of do that spot on the plot one is that the film is about 15 minutes too long and it Mm -hmm. ramps up to a point and then it kind of holds it and just makes it boring and then it has a bit of a silly ending and that silly ending ties into my first point which is, do you remember you were saying that, like, in The Butterfly Effect, it's really weird mm-hmm. I watched this. Um, it, it would, like, the future would be completely changed, but they mm. would be in the same room, just wearing, like, <laughs> different different socks, and you, know, you wouldn't be there. There yeah. is a point, there's a point in this, it's actually quite cool when, um, in this, when t- the timeline corrects itself, because it kind of goes really bitty and pixely and disappears and reforms, and that's quite nice. In this film, there's a bit where she is having a driving lesson with someone, History changes, and she is just sat on the floor in the tunnel the car was in in the future. And what? I thought, how would what? 
that doesn't make sense. No, it really doesn't. And and then it's almost like when that kind of jumping the shark moment happens, because mm-hmm. a lot of the film is set in the same house, it's almost like, yeah, that's just how it works. And then they just push it. And it gets to the point where you think, no, this is silly now. And then it tries to top top its own ending and it ends up just kind of collapsing. Um, until then, the first hour is really good. But the last 20, 30 minutes, you're like, oh, I kind of wish it was mm. done by now. That's disappointing. Mm. But so, still not complete dud. No, no, no. Still good. Still good. Uh, and I, in, it's put Park Shin High on my map um, because yeah. that was genuinely, she was a real standout from The Call, which is a 2020 South Korean film on Netflix. Okay. Let's talk about Resident Evil <laughs> from 2002. Uh, like Doom, it's a video game adaptation with scant resemblance to its source material. Um, But also like Doom, it doesn't really matter because it's not bad, not terrible. James Cameron loves it, apparently. Uh, Roger Ebert did not. So the Umbrella Corporation, they have an underground HQ called The Hive, which is under Raccoon City. Uh, This T-virus, which it basically makes people into zombies, reanimates dead tissue and stuff. When it escapes through the air conditioning, that's right, and uh, infects everyone. Uh, so a team has to go in and prevent the outbreak from spreading to Raccoon City. Among them is Mila Jovovich, who plays Alice, and she's lost her memory due to re- reasons. They go in and find that the staff and the animals in the building are now bloodthirsty zombies. Uh, there's violence. Um, Miliovich remembers her training and they're in a fight to shut down the complex and get out. And maybe, just maybe, Miliovich will remember the secrets about what's going on in the research facility. Who knows? Uh, now, I don't know about any kind of real connection to the games. Uh, I think in Resident Evil 3, she wakes up in a hospital like in this, but don't know, haven't played it. So that part doesn't really matter anyway. I'm sure there were people who in 2002 thought, oh, this is a real departure from the games and that, but I'd say it kind of makes more sense now in a way because since then Resident Evil's gone through so many different iterations so many different styles so it's almost like reinvention is part of the series dna really um it's it's uh it's directed by paul that was was nicely put rupert paul ws anderson well it's pretty well shot well edited some decent action um it's it's very very over the top the action it's a mix of like choreographed fighting and really blaring music it's like you're watching a bollywood remake or something it's uh the use of cgi is pretty spare which is good um until the ending and then breaks out the grid lasers yeah Uh, i did like the grid laser sequence that was fun um it's a very very brutally efficient script it's literally just facts and exposition they don't they don't care about characterization it's just the only characterization you get is really who saves who that's about it really and of course it being an early 2000s films um 
all the actions like mixed with like really overbearing brash breakbeat remixes of rock songs she just get like dance remixes of like Marilyn Manson and stuff it's like <sighs> this is of its time uh, <laughs> it's weirdly bloodless there's a scene where a guy gets eaten alive by zombies and it's honestly like they're just kissing him it's ridiculous so and it doesn't make sense there are loads of bits which don't make sense there's a bit where someone says oh, when you cut the power you un- unlock the doors and yet in the very opening sequence when the power is cut then the doors lock everyone in literally the opposite happens so why is it suddenly suddenly reversed anyway so there's all sorts of, but it's like it's so fast moving and silly that you don't really care um yeah whether they should have made sequels is something we'll discover when i talk about the sequels do you want to go straight into the sequels yes certainly um i'll go into resident evil apocalypse also on prime this was made in 2004 uh it paul ws anderson bailed on this one and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he passed director duties to someone called Alexander Witt, whose filmography is pretty impressive, albeit as a second unit director. He's worked a lot with Ridley Scott. Paul Anderson wrote it, uh, to be fair. Um, so it still has this sort of insane dumb energy of its predecessor. This time there's an incident in the hive that leads to the T-virus outbreaking in Raccoon City. Uh, Jill Valentine is in this one. I think she's from the games. Uh, she comes to shoot some people, to shoot some zombies and warn people to get out of town. Um, Alice gets another chance to wake up again <laughs> and help out. Um, she, she's she been experimented on, Alice uh, Miliovich's character. She now has super strength. It all goes a bit superhero-y. And anyway, so... All the people are trying to get out of the city, but the authorities are keeping them in. Uh, they end up, Jill Valentine and Alice and a few other people, they end up in a spooky castle, which is kind of a bit more like the games. And there's a soldier, a journalist, scared survivor, usual kind of uh, that, that archetypes. Like, <laughs> a spooky castle and a soldier and a journalist. This sounds like a mixture between like Stalker and mm-hmm. the Ninth Configuration. Is it as good? It's not quite up there with that, unfortunately. Sure. Um, Jared Harris is in there as well. His, he is uh, a, a scientist who basically makes a deal with them that if he can get them out of the city, if they rescue his daughter, that's it. So um, there's a tedious black stereotype who's meant to be comic relief. Um, the amount of Dutch angles in this film, whew, you'd think that... <sighs> Everyone will be wearing clogs. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, just get a tripod. <laughs> just get something because it's all over the shop. It it is this is just relentless action, this one. There's but the trouble is there's no real creativity to the action. There's no imaginative set pieces, no tension or anything. It's just arenas and just shooting back and forth. The editing is very typical of the time it was made, which is 2004, in that it 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 tries to create a sense of kineticism through cutting rather than 
through a combination of cutting and what is happening within the frame, if you see what I mean. Um, so it it looks bad. Um, and also, this is even more bloodless than the original. I don't know whether they were just really aiming at a youth audience here, but my God, I lost count of the amount of times someone raised a gun to shoot or, or a monster would lurch towards the camera. And then, of course, the film would just cut to nothing. And it would be like, oh, that person's dead then, we assume. I don't know. Um, and all, all the sound design will be like, oh, you can hear someone getting munched, but you can't actually see what's happening. So on the plus side, the Nemesis monster is pretty cool. Uh, and you, a lot of practical makeup, and it has a kind of Robocop. Say, is it CG or? No, it's got this kind of Robocop Terminator vibe, and he's just a big dude in a suit, really. And But there should have been more of him, because all we get, really, is him rock up, look pretty cool, and then Miljovovich gets this incomprehensible fight scene with him at the end, like the cutting, the editing in that scene. It's too, it's too glossy and flashy and silly and too tame to engender the grimy exploitation feel that its um, that its plot seems to want to give it because it's a lot about this one's more about a bunch of survivors in a kind of overrun city so it's a lot of back alleys and streets and stuff and so of course that makes you think of stuff like the warriors escape from new york that those sorts of quite like over the top but slightly grimy movies um and i suppose in a way it's reminiscent of the purge anarchy although that was made later but still a better film um it's it just looks like a slightly cheap comic book movie really and so it's this is just like the first first resident evil was was an okay film it was kind of mindless but a guilty pleasure should we say and this one's just obnoxious and boring and it does seem to be regarded as a series low point to be fair and for good um, reason I, I, I gotta say just really quickly i mean I, I think i've seen two of the resident evil films i don't know maybe extinction or something but yeah. i remember seeing the first one and possible extinction and, and i the same as you people seem to forget that the original resident evil video game was this stupid ridiculous mm. camp thing and they do these different things with it, and you're like, that's not what the, that's that, which is fine usually if a different medium mm. takes it on. But there's a problem with the films of that era. It's the cutting and the and the like you see mm. the, the sort of abrasive music music that comes in, and you're like, use of CGI, it, it's just yeah, um, just not fun. No, and and really really dated, in it like more dated than something like well the aforementioned movies like like Escape from New York or something. Like how is it that that film from like 30 years previously or 20 years previously in this case how can that be look better than this bizarre but yeah um i'll let no, you you wrote 30 years that's 1981 sorry go on yeah well at the time this was my... yeah yeah so anyway but the point is yes not a good film so that was um i can't even remember what it's called what's that apocalypse yeah 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 um and it's not very good Okay, so I'm going to talk. I'm going to interrupt your Resident Evil <laughs> revisiting to talk about. I think actually, when I was watching this film, have you talked about this on the podcast before? Taking Lives with Ethan Hawke and Angelina Jolie. No, I don't no. believe. I don't believe it's come up. <laughs> yeah. So this is a this is a film that I to show how generic it is. 
I said to Faye, like, we ought to take away. It turned up and I was like, right, let's watch a Korean horror. I scrolled past this and said, have you seen that? She said, don't think, don't think so. Neither have I. Boom. Within minutes. I said, I think I have seen this, actually. <laughs> and she said, yeah, but I can't remember anything. And an hour and, half la- an hour and a half later, I thought, yeah, I can see why I don't remember anything. So this is a film about, um, it's weirdly starring an extremely young Paul Dano from uh, mm. cause this is 2004 so and i do like paul dano i do like looking yeah. at that man he's cool um he seems really genuinely quirky in his real life as well anyway uh it, it starts off in the 80s and there's a teenager uh a awkward sort of nerdy teenager socially awkward played by paul dano going along and he sort of befriends another one on a bus just traveling just he says he's just trying to get he doesn't know where he's from he's just trying to get as far as possible away from it sort of thing and then they the bus breaks down so they hire a car which then breaks down and as uh, his newfound friend is changing a tire he says to him oh we're about the same height and then just boots him in front of an oncoming van causing a huge uh, collision and he takes his identity and then walks off so then the film cuts forward 20 years and there's an fbi profiler called iliana scott played by angelina jolie um mm. who is brought into to, I thought she was being brought into Paris, right? Uh, and, and literally, I must have missed the title sequence when it said, this is Montreal. Because it's just people speaking French, which isn't what happens in Montreal. <laughs> I was like, it's in Paris. I thought this really doesn't look like Paris. And then, uh, yeah, and then and then it's like, no, it's Montreal. They've just got a load of, they just like booted over a load of French, French actors there for some reason. I have no idea why. Anyway, so... One of the French actors I'll mention again. What a man. Um, so she's there to help solve a series of murders, and they realize it's this person who has made a sort of life from killing someone, taking their identity, and moving to, uh, from one person to the next, much like a hermit crab, as um, Angelina says herself. Now, the film is it's just like it's better than Mirrors. It, just because it's got like more to it so you've got angelina julie is obviously very capable but she's kind of like a although she's hyper intelligent in this and she's very good at her job she's just kind of like wispy in it mm-hmm. and you've got the um awkwardness of her with the sort of um french canadian police there that are at odds with her because they've brought someone else in to help with the case olivia martinez is in this and i believe he's one of your favorites from that film a few months ago um, that film you hated about oh, um, was, was, To Live and Die in America or something? Um, the Last Days of American Crime? Yeah, uh, he's in it. Oh my um, god. I, I, oh, I, it, <laughs> I think I've got PTSD from that film. It's so bad. It's such an unpleasant film. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the whole film is, is it kind of like, um, I think Angelina Julie did a few of these, that one with Denzel Washington, the bone collector, that kind of thing. Just dark. Well, this was 2004, so it's kind of a, when was, um, seven was 99, that kind of vibe with it going for like a right, dark, yeah. grisly vibe, but it just doesn't quite get there. Um, so the film is really generic. Ethan Hawke rocks up. Ethan Hawke, um, I love well, I look at his face and I love him. Um, yes. Mainly from his cardigan and is it sinister or whatever it was? Yeah. But he, also... he's, he's an actor who throws himself into any role, and and it, and I like the fact that he's quite capable of, you know, doing some real schlocky stuff, but also doing like highbrow art house cinema. It's good, you know, and he can he can tread that line. I really like how Ethan Hawke as well isn't 
doesn't look like a typical leading man. Like he's mm. in this film, you can see he's got like uneven teeth. He's slightly rat faced, and I, 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 it sounds bad, but you, you know what I mean. He's mm. he's not a typical leading man, and I, I it makes me love him all the more for it. He is in one of my favorite time travel, well, one of my favorite films, Predestination. You mentioned earlier on about one of the most um, intelligent films I've seen, which is Primer, and I think in time travel terms, you've got like Back to the Future third, Primer second, and then you've got Predestination first. Uh, and that's science, everyone. That's literally like the top three sites. So you can stop talking about that now. So this, this, um, so this this film basically trundles on. And it's very clear from even before I've pressed play on Netflix that Ethan Hawke is the killer. It's it's it, like he he is the only other person in the, the film, pretty much. So they bring on Kiefer Sutherland and his ridiculous like sort of um, gelled mullet for like two seconds to try and distract us. But we know it's Ethan. Um, so this film just, it's just generic group, but I'm not going to waste too much time on it because it just bumbles on and it leads up to one of the worst climaxes and most ridiculous climaxes I've ever seen. Um, where, so uh, two, two really quick things before we move on it. So basically I'm just going to tell you the film cause don't worry about watching this crap. Um, it's directed by DJ Caruso, who you mentioned last week, actually. Yeah. Uh, so Ethan Hawke's the killer. He takes on people's identities, boom, <laughs> boom, and then it comes. It comes up to the. Um, it, it does that thing as well, the Jack Reacher syndrome, where you know someone is shown to be hyper intelligent, and you just think you just wouldn't wouldn't have done that. Like there's a sequence yeah. in it where Angelina Jolie's in someone's house, and she feels a draft coming from behind her, so mm. she knows to like move a bookcase and find a secret bedroom underground. And you're like, really? what? Anyway, it's it's full of that nonsense. So Ethan Hawke has sex with Angelina Jolie and supposedly gets her pregnant. So Angelina Jolie then, like, it cuts seven months ahead and she has been fired from a job at the FBI and she's living in, like, rural Wisconsin and he catches up with her and she's really heavily pregnant. And then he stabs her in the stomach and says, this baby cannot live. And then there's a flashback and she's, like, realized, she sort of reveals that, actually, I'm not pregnant. And for the last seven months... I know you've been watching me and I've just been like acting out like a pregnant woman's life wow. and she drops. And I thought for seven months, an FBI agent, they signed that off today. If you knew he was following you and you're as like hard bitten and as driven as you have supposedly been throughout this film to this, to go to this extent that you're this good at your job, that you understand him so well, why didn't you just stop him at any point in the last seven months? Why have you like led up to this ridiculous vaudeville performance? Anyway, nonsense, total bollocks. And but the best thing about this film is that the detective Leclerc is an actor called Chucky Cario, who is a French actor. Mm. And when you see him, you'll recognise exactly who he is. And he is in The Good Thief with Nick Nolte, and that is one of my absolute favourite films. And it was worth it just to look at his visage for a few minutes. Like much like Stephen Lang rocking up in a film, isn't it? Yeah, it, yeah, it makes it worthwhile. It was literally like watching a film and thinking, bloody hell, this is generic. Like when you know who the killer is from the moment they first smile. From and the then, poster, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can from the poster. I'm looking at it now and you can tell from the poster. It's even got that scratchy photo seven vibe um, with the same font. But then, I'm, and then Checky Carrie will come on. I'll be like, oh yeah, you're in it, aren't you? Good, good. Right. That, yeah. That whole thing about like a breeze coming from an underground room. Right. Well, that the only way that could happen would be if there was another 
way into the other underground room for there to be a source for the breeze. If it was a, a closed off underground room, it wouldn't have a breeze just emerging from it. So it would make sense. No. Also, Faye pointed out, not me, when we were watching that film, the lighting is preposterous. Um, everyone is like really brightly lit on one half of the face and not the other. It, it, when she pointed out, I realised now that's really off-putting. Actually, Resident Evil Extinction. <laughs> You're on a roll. Prime. See, I got to th- number three in the series. That's pretty good. How many of them are there? Five or six. They did another one recently. Um, Paul W S Anderson was still not available. But he does. He did write it again. Obviously, Alexander Witt sucked. So where to turn to direct the third part? Well, it's got to be Russell Mulcahy of Highlander fame, obviously. So oh, man. this one was made in 2007. Uh, there's more reused footage in these movies, by the way, than there is in a Maniac Cop sequel. It's ridiculous. Bloody hell. And, and it's still filling in Miljovic's backstory after three bloody movies. Really? <laughs> Yeah, this one opens quite strongly with um, Alice Milovic's character trying to get through some traps and stuff, you know, the laser gates and stuff again. Um, but then she gets killed and and then her body is dumped in a pile of bodies and you realise they're all Alice. So she's a clone. So that's but that was pretty cool. But it's in the first five minutes, not really a spoiler. Anyway, this one, so Resident Evil Extinction is a Mad Max ripoff, basically. Um, Miliovich even has Mel Gibson's hair from Beyond Thunderdome. It's amazing. <laughs> Everything has a brown filter, and it's about surviving the grim wasteland, really. Um, meanwhile, while this is all going on, um, Ian Glenn is trying to harness the zombie horde in order to create an army of slaves. Uh, and of course, he's trying to recreate Alice, hence the clones. That's his idea there. Most of the film is basically Road Warrior. So Alice comes along and, and he, she's trying to help this convoy of wastelanders, um, help them kind of escape the zombies and make their way to Alaska. Amongst there, the wastelander people is a character called Claire Redfield, who I believe is from the games as well. But they're also generic. But anyway, um, so I kind of like the relative clarity this time that there's a pretty simple journey for Alice and a pretty simple motivation for the bad guys. Um, now, Miliovich, Alice's character, she's still sidelined in the plot. They're still doing this after three movies for some reason rather than focusing on her. But anyway, stylistically, it's a lot like those straight to streaming action films you get ten a penny these days. Well, it's in um, Romania on industrial estate. <laughs> it might as well be. It's like um, it just borrows from a bunch of better films, really. It's it's too clean and glossy, and the actors are way too pretty to be convincingly ap- apocalyptic. And all of the ice-cold corporation sections look like on new sets from The Matrix. There's even a guy who sits indoors with sunglasses on the whole time. Um, it was Stevie Wonder Rupert. He did the music. <laughs> Miliovovich is literally airbrushed in, <laughs> in this film. Like, there are close-ups. I'm not joking. There are close-ups in this film where she, her face has been airbrushed. It's amazing. But, yeah. It is way more violent than the second film. So there's actual blood in this one. So that's good. Some good makeup effects on the zombies. 
I there's some it has some nice hokey moments. I like there's a good bit where like Ian Glenn allows these two scientists to be eaten alive in this locked room, and we hear the crunching noises, and then we just see a a single bloodied hand slap against the glass and like and like squeak down. It's quite cool. So it's quite nice ideas like that. Occasionally, the pacing is better. It sounds like the strongest film in the series. Then I would say the first one's better still. Um, because this one does not really keep it up to the end, but the pacing is way better than the um, second movie. Um, and there are occasional moments of tension. There's a decent like uh, flock of ravens, or is it a murder of ravens? Anyway, whatever. It's a murder Big group of crows, of ravens, isn't it? Murder of crows. I don't know. Maybe ravens are something different. Anyway, there's, so there's a raven. Suicide of ravens. <laughs> <laughs> A Russell Mogai of ravens. Um, it, it, yeah. And there's, there's quite a cool shootout in Vegas, which made me think of Fallout. Good. So that's cool. Uh, yeah, there's just a lot more inventiveness and variety in the set pieces than the last film. Although, again, at the end of the day, we are left with the reality that it is just derivative of better films. Uh, like, it is, it's a Mad Max ripoff. And it's like, it's kind of like Anderson, Paul Thomas, and not, not Paul Thomas Anderson, Paul W.S. Anderson. It's like he's going through his old VHS collection or something and picking out his favourite films and just, I mean, the last one, if that was like Escape from New York or The Warriors or something, this one is Mad Max. You know, I wonder what the next one will be. Uh, who knows? Maybe The Lake House. Um, so... <laughs> But if you, you know, if you really want, if you want an alternative to Mad Max, we all know where you should go. You should go and watch A Boy and His Dog. It's the um, only option, really, isn't it? I, my mother doesn't realise how much I love that film, A Boy and His Dog, because she's a big fan of um, Don Johnson. Yeah. Um, and she's got, like, isn't I think she's got his entire back catalogue on DVD and VHS. And I watched the boy and his dog i borrowed it off her on dvd and watched it and i really liked it and i didn't yeah. realize she's like no it's it's really just really weird and crap and i said no it's like it's really it's weird really, and brilliant it's really good <laughs> like that is a very good film yeah i don't know how it's how it has been critically received but it's brilliant what a brilliant film a boy and his dog is. <laughs> jason robards wearing <laughs> rouge on his cheeks and, and <laughs> lipstick well what do you want yeah um, are you going to make it through the next 40,000 Resident Evil films, do you think? Uh, they're very easy to have just in almost... Not, not I wouldn't say in the background because I don't really believe in having films in the background, but to oh. not really focus too heavily on it. So they're, they're easy to watch. And they're all like 90 minutes, so probably I yeah, will, to um, be honest. Uh, I'm, assuming, in I'm assuming they're all on Netflix or something. They're all on Prime. Oh, yes. and is that a hint as to the quality of the latter half of the series? Yeah, so, that was nice to see. Well, let's talk about something else, Drew, but for the love of God, let's talk about Storage 24, a 2012 British science fiction horror film. Um, I, I feel like this should be one you've seen somehow. No. No. It's, it's what's his face, isn't it? What is his face? I can't remember. The director, Johannes Roberts. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking, no, sorry, who stars in it? Uh, so the stars are Noel Clark, Colin O'Donoghue. Yes, Noel Clark is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. 
know, he's not a very good actor. It produced. I, do you know what, Rupert? You should watch this yeah. because, um, oh yeah, he wrote the screenplay for Kid, Adult, Kid Adulthood, uh, played mm. Mickey Smith in Doctor Who. Um, this is a film, right? That I put on um, because purely because I know that in next year. I'm going to have to put my game collection or like a lot of it in storage. So I, we were chatting about that. I sat down with Faye, checked Netflix up, and then Storage 24 came up and I said, oh, here we go. Look, we can watch a horror and do research. So what's better? You know, so I popped it on. I have seen it before, but it's weirdly, it's weirdly ad- addictive to watch for, for very strange reasons. Like, I don't know who Noel Clark is, so I'm going to plow on regardless. Okay, and then you can say how much you hate him. Um, so the film is... I, I, I don't hate him. It's just what, the very few things I've seen him in, it's deeply unconvincing. Well, if you bear in mind, I'm watching him in a low-budget horror from a decade ago. So I think I have... expect. I've never seen anything else. My expectations are like zero. To be honest, when I watch this film... Because Colin O'Donoghue um, is an Irish actor who played the main priest in the right that film i quite liked with um anthony hopkins we talked about a few weeks ago all oh, right yeah the right yes he may yeah this was the the next year which is weird because it i don't know it, the way he acts in this isn't as good as in that so you'd think it'd be the other way around anyway so the film starts off outside like a like it's like a storage uh you know like big yellow storage kind of thing basically which is not a johnny mitchell song big yellow storage Oh, that's big yellow taxi, isn't it? That's mm. one. That's one for the Johnny Mitchell fans out there. Woo, go! Um, it starts off outside like a, a storage facility, and there's a traffic jam, and we are introduced to Noel Clark and Colin O'Donoghue, who, who are guys in their twenties who are um, live together, and Noel Clark has just come out of a relationship with, I believe, it's Antonia Campbell, who's, who bless her, is svelte. <laughs> she is a svelte woman. Um, <laughs> And the, he's going to the storage facility just to kind of um, clean out his stuff. But really, he wants to confront her because he doesn't know why the five-year relationship has ended. Um, and Colin O'Donoghue, who's kind of his mate, is just along to smoke some fags and just keep him company along the way. They get there, and there's like a military aircraft crash. Some weird monster comes out of it, and they end up all trapped in this storage facility and it's 90 minutes of them trying not to be eaten alive and have their asses pulled up basically now this is a recipe a recipe for just like a really tedious low budget film but for some reason the bickering between the characters is weirdly realistic I don't know what it is. It's very bizarre, right? Because I didn't expect to like it for this reason. The monster's cool. It's got this kind of um, crab-like mouth, and it's a mixture of um, practical effects and CG, which really works. Because when it's CG, it's kind of chasing someone, so it's fuzzy in the background. And when it when it's like got center stage, it's practical, so it works and it's fine. Um, I think the film works for me because. All of the characters, although they're all stereotypes, you've got like his girlfriend who's just a kind of waif who just wants to move on from the relationship. Noel Clark, who's um, been sort of um, knows there's more going on. He knows he's been sort of discarded for other reasons, and he's just kind of really needy and desperate to get to the point. Colin O'Donoghue, who plays his kind of cool, hot Irish friend, who is just uh, come on, just move on, man. And then you've got her friends played by Laura Haddock, and there's another dude in there as well who were just who was trying to shag it, obviously, all in the storage facility. Natch. But there's something about the fact, you know, when you watch a film, I um, you watch. We talked about this before, where you watch a film and you just hate everyone. 
bl- a blanket of hate is cast over everyone and you don't yes. care who lives or dies. This is kind of not that you like the characters, but you know why you dislike them. They seem very like um well sketched in the short time you spend with them. Mm. So I was weirdly on board with it, the whole thing. And it, it plays through like a typical, you know, some people live, some people die, and then there's a, an old guy who comes in to fix the electronics and he's the first to get killed kind of thing. But everyone sticks to the characters. You And you really hate the characters you're supposed to hate. Like, you just think you mm. were doing such prickish, selfish things. And at the end of it, there's not, like how can I sort of say it without giving it away? Cause I do think people should watch this film storage 24. Um, there's sort of two endings. The first ending is, it's not a typical, are oh, we just get back together? It's all good, which is how a cheaper film would go. And then this kind of a little cherry on top that I, I really liked because it puts this, everything all the characters have been through. It seems quite intense. And then in the final moments, you're like, Oh, actually this is a, now we're moving on to a different scale and i was i felt it earned it and i was completely on board it felt like a really nice uh compact and tightly told well-acted story that is easy to miss i can imagine wow this is a surprise i just assumed this would be very very generic and fall into that irritating trap of just really forced drama from people arguing for no reason but this I think it's a bit more convincing. If you imagine, if if this film was just set in a house, and it was just people arguing, they all live together and they're arguing, it would still be like a totally bog standard drama. But I think the fact that the, I don't know this, there was something about I understood every, the way I felt about each character is the way the film wanted me to feel about them, and I and it was like oh I, I didn't expect that from this kind of film. Like it wasn't, I wasn't emotionally engaged, but I understood it was kind of well, yeah, yeah, well, well um, explained to me. So no, I liked it. Oh, good. That sounds like I might even watch it then. Yeah. But yeah. It, I can imagine if you're like, oh, they just got on my nerves. I would completely understand. But for me, I was like, no, no, I'm, I, maybe my expectations are too low. And this was mediocre, but to me seemed good, if you know what I mean. Good. So my next film is a film called Alive, not that one. Um, this is a film, it's actually hashtag Alive. It's a Korean uh, zombie film. And uh, hang, on. This... hang on. This is another thing that bothers me about film titles. Question marks, exclamation marks, and hashtags in front of the title. It's like, yes, I know you're a modern movie. Don't need to put a hashtag there. Anyway. Oh, sorry about that, Rupert. I didn't realise you hated hashtags as well. Yes, um, I do. <laughs> you hate everything. I've read your book. There's not a moment of grammar in sight. Um, yeah, so uh, Hashtag Alive 2020 career film. And this is a story about, um, well, I originally thought it was going to be a really irritating story about like a gamer, like a modern competitive gamer um, trying to survive a zombie apocalypse and kind of limited by his sort of social inabilities. But what actually happens is he's in his early twenties. He lives in a high rise apartment, pardon me, with um, his parents and there's a zombie outbreak that kicks off while he's gaming, playing some generic online shooter when he could have been playing Landstalker on the Mega Drive, quite frankly. And, and then um, he's kind of realizes that his family 
aren't going to come and save him like they normally do, and he has to fend for himself. And what it leads on to is a weirdly, um, a weirdly touching story of like how he is completely unprepared for this, this, this mm. whole thing, and he's, you know, he realizes he's got no scavenging skills. He's got no like life skills beyond gaming, and he's just got no way of, um, like getting food or sustenance for himself beyond just going out and stealing it. So the, a lot of it is filmed in, in his apartment and it's just him coming to terms with everything and mm. basically like fending off thoughts of suicide um, until his, um, how can I say it without uh, it being a spoiler, his options open up somewhat, should we say. Okay. So, um, but yeah, a lot of the film is just based on this, this guy in, in, in his, in his flat, just panicking and just not, not bored, but just having no idea what to do next. And it captures it really well. Um, and it's another example of quite frankly, of a, just a really good Korean thriller. The mm. zombies play a minimal part. They're there basically as a, as a function to keep him in his room. Uh, but a lot of the film it's, it's where the, um, a lot of the strengths of the film comes from the acting. And in all fairness, in a film where you've basically got one main character for the vast majority of the film, if it can hold your attention, it's a mm. winner. Uh, so that's, yeah, that does sound interesting. actually, and perhaps has something to say about modern youth as well, you know, like, uh, the kind of infantilization of young adults, not being able to take responsibility for not being able to face real life in a way, because of their existence in an online world. Sounds no, absolutely. Good. Absolutely. I think, I think it, it definitely does, uh, does cover that. Hmm. That sounds interesting. Um, and that's called hashtag alive. Uh, yeah, that's uh, called hashtag alive. And that is on Netflix. So when does he fly over the Andes then? And then start eating people? He doesn't. He does. He do, there's a bit where um, he gets bored, though, and he puts up like um, he sets up like a lamp and he makes like a puppet show with his Andes. <laughs> um, right then, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yes, is on Netflix currently. Um, so Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas: A Savage Journey to the Heart of the American Dream is a book by Hunter S. Thompson written in 1971 and then this is the film that was it was adapted in 1998 by terry gilliam with johnny depp as hunter s thompson and benicio del toro as his savage drugs companion um dr my trousers my trousers are off by the way they're off (laughs) for this conversation it is a film which really doesn't have much of a plot, but the basic premise is that Hunter and his lawyer um, are headed for Las Vegas to cover um, a bike race, uh, as in, like, write about it, like, write an article, and then they later cover a drugs conference as well. They basically spend their time taking cocaine, mescaline, ether, and generally getting wasted. They potentially mess up various lives along the way and trash hotel rooms and it's all in the name of chasing a quite specific american dream promised by the love generation of the 1960s and they have a lot of fun along the way um 
but they don't really find the American dream, <laughs> or at least they find it wanting. Anyway, it really revels in the insane joy and anxiety of extreme drugs culture, um, as in the highest peaks and the lowest lows. But ultimately, it's about really about the failure of the 60s counterculture movement. And it made me think of something um, experienced myself at Glastonbury a few years ago. Not a massive drugs binge, but when I say that, I, I remember there was a moment when I looked out across the kind of valley, the Glastonbury Valley, and and I I did feel kind of uplifted by this sense of this utopian community sort of thing. And a sense that everyone was joyous and everyone was there for a common cause. It was a kind of a kindred love thing. But, <laughs> as, but as Huntress Thompson explains very eloquently in this film, it is a lie. And or at least it's an illusion which doesn't hold up to the scrutiny of real life at all. No. And and I think perhaps the best representation of this in this film is where the two guys wasted obviously they go and visit a diner um just some like remote diner and they meet this disheveled ex-beauty as he puts it kind of burned out jane russell type and they come face to face with someone who has had to work and struggle and make ends meet her whole life and we assume that she's been beaten down probably literally all the way through her life and it's there that we see that the lifestyle that is frankly quite privileged lifestyle that's available to Huntress Thompson. Um, it's one born of their privilege and the luck that has enabled them to rampage across America, doing all this stuff, uh, disrupting these social systems. Um, the, the very social systems in fact, that give them something to rail against and, and their kind of sense of reckless abandon would never have helped her um, in her life and her existence. And their presence actually really has only made her life slightly worse. And yeah. it's it made her feel bad. It made her feel slightly worse. It solved nothing. And I think there's, that's where the recognition comes in of the limits of what they're actually doing. I think the, the watching the whole film but i've never been i've dabbled but i've never been a major drugs user um and and i think that there's the whole th- that what i get from it is that whilst the film is like a gid- a giddying high yeah. it, it comes from the realization that if you live your life at this artificially uh accentuated peak there's yeah. really nowhere to go and there's no lasting meaning and, and yeah. everything is artifice anyway so yeah. if you have no sort of center it you can't it, it, it and everything sort of means nothing anyway it's just a yes. really nihilistic yeah i think um, so too yeah and i think it's it's almost ironic that because you know they they're observing the kind of meaninglessness and the the surface level um kind of crassness of the world around them is particularly in vegas obviously and they're being crass themselves yeah exactly and yeah and yet there's no depth to actually what they're doing either no sort of thing so completely solipsistic yeah and yeah i know what you mean it's i don't think it's necessarily to enjoy the film um i don't think you have to have experienced the specific drugs they're taking in order to enjoy the film but I, i i'd probably say that some hazy memories of being wasted do help to find the humor um 
and there is just there is a real joy in seeing the interactions of the two actors because it's just so funny and probably less so when they come into contact with others um but that's partly the point i think women feel a bit sorry for those they encounter actually and abuse of their behavior and actually the funniest parts are when it's just them in a hotel room johnny depp and Rita del toro just just having this having this bizarre like internal it, like internal logic to their conversations which go absolutely nowhere and like the whole sequence where Benito del Toro has to he's absolutely determined that at the peak of White Rabbit that he has to um that Johnny Depp has to throw like a radio into the bath and electrocute him it's just parts like that and it's like whole sequences like that which make absolutely no sense but are just hilarious to watch yeah just in, in, in their minds they niche. have this like a far higher meaning and really yeah. it's just assisted suicide yeah you know he's like that's yeah. all it is, and it I, is. I think that's yeah. i think that's what um uh, you you haven't mentioned yet the funniest part of the entire film where benicio del toro is in a lift with a knife rupert <laughs> oh, yeah. anything benicio del toro i realize particularly watching it this time that he is the key to this movie uh, he's just so funny like and the fact that he's like clearly put on weight for the role and he's just like really shambling and <laughs> awful in it but the bit in the lift where he threatens a guy with a knife and like thrusts it's like he's thrusting the knife towards him but also like, stopping himself stopping i don't himself, i still like, don't i can see it I, I don't know what he's doing it's like i'm doing it now it's like he's got his arm twisted as if it's someone's pulling it behind his back and then he's like moving it sideways and forwards but then slapping his own forearm as if to stop himself like oh you're lucky i'm here to stop me from doing this it's (laughs) It's completely unprovoked and of course it's just a camera crew in a lift like what are you doing brilliant one of him is cameron dears in fact um it is yeah it's not really it is very very funny all the way through but it hasn't really got any recognisable jokes in it as such. It's, it's draining. It's, I find myself drained by the end when I watch yeah. that film. Um, and there's really nothing else quite like this film, to be honest. It just feels like... It feels like they... Terry Gilliam... It feels like Terry Gilliam, that they took like a crew and stole a load of money from a studio and just went and made this movie. I, it, I can't believe that the studio would have looked at the rushes on this one and thought oh yeah this is gonna be good this is gonna be a real money spinner this one i i think that if you it i think it's um i look at this film uh for drugs like i would look at waking fright for booze yes and i well that's the other thing to yeah like it is not yes it glorifies the experience of being on drugs but it doesn't make it that that's not to say it, it puts it in a positive light because they really are out of control and wretched the whole way through. And I think as I get older, I kind of, I feel more sorry for the people whose lives are affecting around them. Still just as funny as it ever was. But I think now I I feel more sympathy for the, like the people who, whose lives they're just stomping on as they go around the place. Yeah. I think it, it glorifies, it glorifies the, um, the abilities of like uh, drugs themselves but it, yeah. but every human in the story including the people who take the drugs it's just you realize it's just it's such a temporary pass yeah. for you know any kind of 
self-serving validity you feel you have in the world? Yes, and I think that is it's mirrored in his kind of conclusions about the the sixties love generation that it was such a brief moment when he's talking about that movement it was such a brief moment like a couple of summers maybe uh, a brief moment which held a lot of promise and felt like a real high but then th there's a this disappointing come down afterwards so it's it, he's sort of equating the drug experience with that whole social movement and ultimately how disappointing it is his books, by the way, I've read, I think it's called The Great Shark Hunt about uh, Nixon. It's him following Nixon as a journalist in the 70s. And it, it's it, 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 his mind is like an explosion of words. I couldn't make it through the book because there was. it's like there's too many thoughts going on at once. Yes. And I think that's what the film captures is yeah. that it's this this whole sense of like a deeper meaning that everyone is trying to strive towards that just simply doesn't exist. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just I I love it for that. But then we we're approaching it for people who are content in our lives, and I can see the appeal to yeah. someone who doesn't have that, and they're like, oh, there has to be more. I I will indulge in this to try and achieve it. Yes, and and I suppose there's on top of that there's the the slight sense of superiority. It is particularly in Benicio del Toro's character. This sense of superiority, superiority as in those around him, sense of entitlement, uh, which gets pretty ugly towards the end, to be honest. Um, yeah, but yeah, so I mean, there is a serious message behind it, if you like, but it is very, very funny. Uh, that got quite deep. Good. Um, I have two more. Have you got any more movies to chat about, or have you got? I'm all out. Right, I got two. And um, I'm going to lurch into this one. This is a film I watched on Amazon Prime called Don't Listen. The original title is, I assume it's like Vojes. Uh, uh, it's Spanish for voices. So this is Don't Listen, a 2020 movie. Um, and it's obviously, a, obviously it's a horror rupert. And this is a film about a, uh, a couple of disparaging ages um the man looks like he's in his like early 50s and the woman just clearly looks like she's far younger and they have a nine-year-old son uh, who and they move to a sort of rural spanish town where he instantly instantly the kid just starts like hearing voices through his walkie-talkie and stuff um mm -hmm. i must admit that i expected this to be très générique uh that's greek for awesome but the, the it's not really a spoiler to say that the the child dies like within minutes, and I thought the whole film would be the way it's presented. The kind of it it come it comes across as a kind of real slow burn. So you think, oh, this is going to be ninety minutes of the child saying, "This house is haunted." The fucking back, and the parents saying, "No, it's not." And then the last ten minutes, everything ramps up. But what actually yes. happens is it's dealing with grief. It's much more about grief. So it's much more about um, the the awful things happening to the family and then the parents trying to move on from it and then they get um a uh spanish um person who specifically deals an older guy in his 70s who's really good who deals with um sort of um what's the word transcribing uh messages from the dead through electrical formats which is very handy that he's doing a book signing in the town at this time um 
around and it's like is he is he a charlatan or does he is he really can he really do this can he really get us in contact with our son and on top of that do we want to get in contact with our son and on top of that if we do get in contact with our son why can we do that why hasn't he moved on what is what is it about this place and it's quite nice it's it's not what i'd watch again it's very well filmed it's everyone has got a great voice in it there's a lot of there's a lot of wonderful spanish growling and there's a it's a very pretty film there's a lot of pretty architecture and it never um leans too much into jump scares it's much more ponderous than that and thoughtful and mm-hmm. although it's a sort of small scale story the act the acting is so strong in it that it, it kind of holds together as usual the last 10 15 minutes when the stakes ramp up and everything gets a bit loud it does get a bit silly and i will say as well that the soundtrack is absolutely dreadful it's one <laughs> of the few the one of the few films that um I've had to just watch holding a remote control and every time that I can sense a jump scares come in, I just have to like bang it down six or seven notches because the way the jump scares are, are approaching this film is to have a really garish metallic screech at high volume. Jesus. So you're like, okay, I can see that like, you know, everyone's looking around waiting for something to happen. I'll just pop it down a bit because I know there's going to be a really foul scream in a second. Um, but beyond that, it's quite a nice film. And it, it doesn't feel too... You know, we talk about, we watch uh, Korean and Asian films and, and you get a real sense of the culture. Yes. Um, this is very much set in a kind of pretty, um, ornate, old-fashioned home and it feels pretty generic. Right. So it's just it just feels quite self-contained. But is a decent a decent goosey. It's a it's a solid solid seven out of ten from me. Okay. And I just realised you haven't got another one. So my no. final is 1989's The Terror Within. Uh, this is a Roger mm. Corman film. Oof. Oh yeah, I'm looking at the VHS cover right now, and this stars George Kennedy. I know that man. George Kennedy. But I do not know him from. It's a naked gun I know him from. Yeah, and um, yeah, what, I know him. he was also in. Is in. He's in the Delta Force as well, isn't he? Ah, oh, maybe that as well. That film is pro-American. So too, Natch. Yeah, I think. It, I think it's just. The, the, I looked through his entire filmography after I watched the film, and I thought I know him from something. But I think I just know him from things, <laughs> not one thing that I watch often. Um, this film stars an actor and who is now more known as a producer and director called Andrew Stevens. When I say the name Andrew Stevens to you, what do you think of? Generic name. Uh, You don't think of a string of early 90s erotic thrillers with Shannon Tweed and Shannon Weary then? Weirdly, I don't know. That isn't what sprang instantly to mind. That is literally what he is known for. That is that. And when I see Andrew Stevens, I'm like, oh, the bloke who gets his nuts out in a load of films in the 90s. Um, (laughs) And look at you, William Sadler. Um, So the terror within uh, has Andrew Stevens. He directed the sequel. I am so keen to watch that. It reminded me of a film from the mid '90s, I think '95, starring Lance Henriksen called Screamers. Have you seen that? Is that that's not the same one as the one with um, Peter Weller, is it? Yeah, sorry, Peter Weller. Sorry, yeah, yeah. not Lance Henriksen. Or maybe it is yeah. Peter Weller and Lance Henriksen. But yeah, I love that film. I don't know why mm. it was like because it was a film that said, 
this is how it is. There's two camps on an alien planet, and they're being attacked. Uh, they hate each other, but they need to work together to sort out this alien menace. Boom. Done. And the film, Fair Play, stuck to its guns, and I've always liked Screamers. This is 1989, and the, the plot is that humans have in a post-apocalyptic future have been driven underground um and they've they're sort of in a constant battle um when they do go sort of topside with a load of mutants mutant humans they call gargoyles for reasons that aren't explained so it's just you know we're running out of food um we'll go we'll go out you know pick up some stuff and hope we don't get killed and it's very much kind of the thing but in a desert and underground effectively with a lower budget right the telephones in this film are larger than my flat. They, you know, the second that you unplug that from the wall, you're on one bar, Max. Gone. Gone by the time you leave the room. I have to go in and recharge. Um, so the film is just Andrew Stevens who's got this wonderful hair. It's like a bouffant that needs, it's like too short to gel, but too long to like do anything, to just let it happen. But he lets it happen anyway. And George Kennedy is the guy who runs, runs this underground bunker. And it's just a case of um, they get this, uh, this woman gets attacked by a monster. They take her underground. And it just so happens that um, Andrew Stevens has shagged her as she may have been shagged by a mutant. So they don't know if, if she's pregnant with like a human baby or this weird mutant baby that's going to burst out a la aliens and kill them all. It's basically like a tick box of, of films of the era. Now, we would know that if an embryo <laughs> right, advances six months in a few hours, it's not human. But the people in the film, they seem to just want to give it a chance because they're like, no, maybe it's not a, maybe it's not a like, human-eating mutant. Maybe it's just keen. And lo and behold, Rupert, it, it kind of goes into the air ducts and picks them off one by one. It is a weirdly brutal, like, 90, late 80s sort of horror that takes yes. takes things from such like Alien and um, and the Thing because you, because you think it's got like a rape sequence in it like a mutant rape sequence and it's also got like a botched abortion so you're watching it thinking Jesus. I thought this would be like cheesy fun but it's actually like quite heavy heavy handed in in certain aspects it, it's kind of silly and gory enough to warrant a watch. It's not a lost classic unless you've got a penchant for massive, massive phones. But beyond that, <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, it's just silly. Like they, they say, oh yeah, we'll make, um, we'll make a gun, we'll make a flamethrower, but it's only got five shots. And then there's this big sequence about them like cobbling together weapons from the stuff they've got because they're kind of a, you know, like an underground. <laughs> research facility and then nothing is made of those weapons and you're like oh okay i was quite looking forward to like seeing where they would come in but oh that's cool that's cool put them down forget about them um and yeah there's a lot of sort of silly moments in it but it's nasty enough to to warrant a watch and george kennedy's in it and andrew stevens who would then go on to make a lot of cock films <laughs> amazing so am i watching this yeah, I think you should. <laughs> I'm going to watch the sequel because Andrew Stevens went on to star in and direct the sequel. And from what I've read briefly, it's a massive vanity project, and I'm completely on board for that. 
um, because he's like a handsome 80s looking dude and I can imagine there's just like loads of shots of him in like tiny shorts sweating saving the world with loads of mutants everywhere and as long as it's as full on as this I'm up for it well you let me know how that goes <laughs> so that is it Rupert I know this is uh, overrun let me just see how long it is oh two nearly three hours <laughs> so <laughs> Let's just let's, let's wrap it up quickly. I know you've got a lot of Greek food on the way, as I will as well soon. Um, so I'm looking at the films for me this week, and I've got uh, Is My Daughter Really Dead, Ninja Assassin, Forgotten, The Punisher, Mirrors, The Call, Taken Live, Stories 24, Alive, Don't Listen, and uh, what is it? What's this? The Terror Within. Mm. Film of the week for me is it? Have you got one? While I look at these, have you got one you can choose for yourself? Well, Obviously, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is an essential watch, but um, I think of the other, it's not been the best week for me, but I think Dark Waters is worth seeking out. I think it's a, a good, it's a solid movie. It's got a little bit of 70s paranoia going on. Um, well made, well acted, and an interesting story. Mark Ruffalo, yeah. Awesome. Mark Ruffalo looking distinctly schlubby in it. So, yeah. I, uh, I, I am torn. I'm torn between Alive, not that one, and F- Forgotten. I did like Forgotten a lot. I'm going to go with Alive because, okay. um, yeah, because it... it um, that certainly it, sounded it, intriguing. Yeah, it's nice for... Uh, as, as, um, again, I just... There's a lot of, like, Japanese food and culture in it. So, and I, uh, Sorry, Korean food and culture in it, yeah. so I'm, I'm keen for that. So, Films of the Week then from, from you are... This way you say what your Film of the Week is. Dog waters, that is. <laughs> and mine is hashtag alive. Although on Wikipedia it's just called alive, which is odd. So mm. yeah, that's it from me. And have you got anything on the cards? Uh, I don't think so. Um, now, I obviously, um, I'm, I've invested in my first 4K Blu-rays. Okay. But I'll talk about that more at a later date because they're actually Christmas gifts. So. Okay. It's gonna be, it's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. I, yeah, I'm what I'm gonna check them out and see if it's if I'm gonna end up wasting or sorry spending a lot of money um, building up a collection of 4K now. We'll see if it's worth it. That is intriguing because you mm. you only last week you completely dismissed this out of hand. Can you at least tell us one of the films you're gonna watch on 4K? Uh, I, I'll, I'll, it will definitely come up in a, a future episode, but, um, yeah, as far as 4k goes, it's like, I feel like it's something which is only going to apply to the absolute very pinnacle. Whereas for example, with my horror film collection, I will, I will really, really scrape that barrel and I'm quite happy to get it on Blu-ray. So, but 4k seems like a real luxury item. So I'll see if it's worth it. I am going to carry on watching Korean thrillers because be. they, I've literally not watched a bad film yet. Mm. So, and that, that is good. So I'm going to carry on with that. Good. Right. Well, it's been a pleasure as always. As, yeah. Enjoy your Greek food and um, I'll speak to you soon. Okay, my love. Bye-bye. <laughs>